1: You know, when I came into this episode knowing that we are reviewing a truly iconic and celebrated title, I wanted to start it with a very classic question. What's your favorite scary movie? However, I do feel that's kind of cliche and a little tacky at this point because it's so overdone. So instead, it's going to go something like this. Just stay with me. Hi, this is Gail Weathers with an exclusive eyewitness account of this amazing breaking story. Several more local teens are dead, bringing to an end the harrowing mystery of the mass killings that has terrified this peaceful community like the plot of some scary movie. It all began with the scream of a 911 and ended in a bloodbath that has rocked the town of Woodsboro. All played out here in this peaceful farmhouse, far from the crimes and the sirens of the larger cities that its residents have fled. Okay. Okay. Let's take it back to one. Come on, move it. This is my big shot, Troy. Let's go.
0: (laughs) Oh, you got that monologue memorized. Look at her.
1: Look, I I was working on it, looking in the mirror, trying to get that, that fierce, ferocious, absolutely just poised and powerful Courtney Cox stare that she has perfected the glare when she looks into that camera. That woman, I mean, Courtney Cox owns the character of Gail Weathers. Everyone's got a favorite character in Scream. My favorite is Gail Weathers. How about you, Troy?
0: Oh, I love Gail Weathers. She is definitely, I would say, of the of the of the f- characters that have continued through the franchise, Gail Weathers is definitely my favorite for sure. Uh yeah, Courtney Cox. I mean, you can't at this point you can't picture anybody else in that role. And you know, originally they were trying to cast, and I just don't see it. I would I don't know. I it just doesn't fit in my mind. Janine Garofalo. I've
1: heard that. I've heard that.
0: Probably. And I'm like, oh. And you know, Molly Ringwald was who they approached first to do to play uh Sydney. And she felt like she was too old for, for the role.
1: I absolutely think so. Like, wouldn't they have been how many years after playing like those roles, like those characters, would she still be playing a high school character? Yeah. Like she was doing that in, like nineteen eighty-six, let alone like nineteen ninety-six? That would have been strange. That wouldn't have really felt weird, don't you think?
0: Yeah, well she was 26 in 96.
1: But what a what a blessing that she didn't take that role because I mean, and I know it, it's a horse that's it's a dead horse that we have been beating, that we gays have been beating, but it's got to be said. It's got to be said. Sydney Prescott is the the quintessential final girl, I would say at at this point in the game. I mean, in the sense of a final girl who is both like believable and genuinely likable, but also like super capable. <laughs> it's just like she takes the hits and she keeps on coming. Sydney Prescott keeps on coming back for more. And now there's rumor that she's really coming back for more. in the new Scream 6, what started off as like internet gossip has seemed to maybe possibly develop into something that could very well be true. And like I'm fine either way with it. Uh, but after watching this movie, I gotta say, like, Sydney Prescott is C- Scream. And Scream is Sydney Prescott. Scream is Nev Campbell. And removing that from the movie, I don't know what it's gonna do for the rest of the series when that inevitably does happen. But that woman has such a power over the camera. The camera is absolutely just smitten with her. Whenever Nev Campbell is on camera, I am. In it to win it and she is just so such a commanding lead such the anchor of this movie she really does hold this entire movie and entire franchise down uh and and keeps it uh grounded and in, in, in kind of in like in the midst of all the absurdity that keeps going on around Sydney Nev Campbell always manages manages to keep her feeling, Real and and human and grounded, and I love that about her. And she's just so charming in this movie.
0: Well, we got a glimpse of what the Scream franchise would be without Nev Campbell or really any of the legacy characters with the MTV uh, series Scream. And you know, you can put a lot of judgment on you know wh- where it would go without her and how it would end up based on that attempt. Which I found a lot of I found a lot of things charming about the Scream television series. I'm going to admit it to you. I liked some of the characters but you're right you're when you're watching it and it's playing out very much as a scream film even though it's a television series based on the, the the film it's just lacking it's lacking i was fine with them i guess i wasn't fine if it was truly a issue that they were not giving nev campbell what she was asking for because like i said you 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 give her i mean she is the anchor how much money has she made this Franchise, how much money has she made the last Scream film? I mean, look how much that made. You know, I give her what she was asking. So I'm not fine with them if if they weren't willing to give her what she wanted to come back. However, I was fine with her really not coming back, if that makes sense. Uh, because at some point, let the character be. It's six. She's been in, this is going to be, well, she's been in five films. And I feel like especially the last three Scream films, it's basically rinse and repeat. She's doing the exact same thing. She shows up for a little bit of the film, just in time to get chased by the killer a little bit and be there for the huge killer reveal. And um, not that it's not a blast, but like, what more can you do with her? If you're going to bring her back, do it in a way that makes it... Fresh and meaningful to the, to the story, not kind of like shoehorned in because I, even though I loved the last scream film, I felt like her role in it was just kind of dropped in there to have her return. I mean, it was basically the whole final act of the last scream film was pretty much the whole final act of the first scream film. So I want to see them. I don't mind them bringing her back, but I just want to see them do something different with her.
1: I agree. I agree. And I'll, I'll say like the last Scream film almost, almost felt like to a lesser degree what Scream 4 was. Like Scream 4 started to introduce the idea of other characters, younger characters, um, and it brought her back. And I thought, it honestly, I love Scream 4. I have very few issues with it. I think it's a blast. Um, Alison Brie In that jacket, Uh, like I mean, I I just think it's—I think it captures the fun of the franchise. Um, But it was starting to kind of practice the idea of you know introducing a new generation. The the newest Scream, you know, Scream Five, did that, but with like half the amount of Sydney. And what I think I really would like to see is you know give us a movie that shows us what it could be like without her, or if you have her in a very minimal context like references like news footage or something like give me like an easter egg let me know she's still part of the universe but yeah like let me see what a story could be without her but eventually like if you're going to revisit her give me one more movie revolving around her stop making her secondary conclude the storyline in a way that feels nicely wrapped up let's get one more sydney based film i don't think it's going to be this next one but i wouldn't mind seeing one more movie about her journey kind of coming to an end, whatever that is symbolized, whatever that may be. I don't want to just see her slowly like kind of sent off in cameos until she's just no longer there. I want her to be taken out properly. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know, that's that's kind of what the, where the rumor mill is churning. I will say, I mean, we... we- We're we're reviewing Scream nineteen ninety six.
1: That's this is. Can you tell? That's
0: the film. No, no, no. But the the issue is the. I don't want this to turn into because literally this could be like a five hour episode. So one of my stipulations when talking about this film was that we try not to talk about any of the other sequels because this film is by itself is so much already to talk about. Um, So I feel like, you know, we will someday down the road, cover the rest of the films in the franchise. I'm sure. But I, I want to kind of stay focused on scream. 1996, and it's hard. It really is going to be hard. It really is because the.
1: Whole I think we got out of our system already. I think we <laughs> talked about it. A little
0: whole bit. large scream universe exists, and it is one of the, it is one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. So. How are you going to, you know, I mean, there's so much to talk, to, uh, talk about it, and then there's so much going on right now with the franchise, with the Neve Campbell rumors, with Scream 6 being in production as we speak, taking place in New York City. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around the franchise, but I want to kind of pull it back and focus on the original scream film and our thoughts on that and because like i said we could go off on tangents which i am right now um but (laughs) uh yeah so scream 1996 now folks if you listen to our last episode we did mention we were going to be covering poison ivy the 1992 drew barrymore sarah gilbert thriller erotic thriller Unfortunately, that kind of fell through, and it was our seventy-fifth episode. It's our this is our seventy-fifth episode, Roger. So we wanted to stick with Drew Barrymore, but then do something worthy of seventy-five. We've done this seventy-five times more than that with our Patreon. So we just said, "Fuck it, let's do it. Let's go with Scream." Yeah. Uh, when we first started the uh, the podcast, I was always adamant that we were never going to do. These super popular films like Halloween, Friday the 13th, Scream, because they've been talked about so much. What more could be said about them, right? But, I mean, I think we can have a lot of fun with this and bring some some unique insight into the conversation about this film. Uh, especially now that the franchise is reignited uh, you know, and, and hot again. And speaking of Patreon, check it out, folks. We just dropped uh, our full length episode for June, and it is the 1985 comedy starring Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Elaine Brennan, Clue. So if you want to hear that, go to patreon.com/slash Dark Knight of the Podcast.
1: I couldn't keep my shit t- together. I-, I couldn't. Literally, I couldn't keep from laughing just in like recollecting some of the moments in Clue. I. I, I even right now when I think of Eileen Brennan with that goddamn purse beating on that fucking furnace, I can't I lose my shit. I can't do it. Get away from me! Like, I can't, can't get enough of it. Uh, but yeah, seriously, that should that right there should be motivation for you guys to get on that goddamn Patreon and give that one a listen because, whoo, it was a fun one. I was laughing so hard, I was crying. One of my favorite films. It really came from a place of of genuine appreciation, much like this title, and it. When when we decided upon talking about Scream, upon learning about the whole you know loss of Poison Ivy uh, and the inability to visit that movie now, though we shall in the future, we assure you. um, You know, I I agree with you. I I never really thought of Scream as a title like that I needed to cover, but I enjoy so much talking about you. Uh,
0: Oh well, thank you. I'm flat.
1: (laughs) Pause. Uh, no. <laughs> but I enjoy so much talking about these horror titles with you in general. And oftentimes we're talking about titles that are like obscure or ones that, you know, one of us maybe has never seen. I'm really excited to talk about a title that like you and I are both super familiar with. Um, and I think very much has defined our appreciation for horror in general and influenced our careers. I mean, you and I are both, Filmmakers, but we're both filmmakers that specialize, focus within a, a somewhat of a niche genre, which is the slasher horror.
0: And, and if anybody has seen any of my three films, particularly I would say Mrs. Claus, um, you know that Scream influenced me. Definitely. It is a film that I remember I saw it in the theater When it came out way back in 96, in December of 96, I was there in the theater and I was just in awe. I I saw it scream four times in the theater because that is how much it just, I, I was just like, fuck, I haven't seen anything like this forever, you know? It's been talked about to death, and the fact that the 90s, the early 90s, were basically a desert. For for good horror films, you had you had some decent horror flicks come out, Misery, Silence of the Lambs. But for the most part, particularly the slasher genre by 1990 was was dead, literally dead, fucking dead. You weren't getting really anything. You get the occasional like, oh, maybe Dr. Giggles or something like that. But you did not. Uh, there was not successful slasher films hitting theaters to the degree that you had them in the eighties and seventies. So it's very much known that Scream, when it came into theaters, it revitalized the entire slasher genre. And some will say it was for better. Some will say it was for worse. Because what ended up happening is we've got we got tons of quote unquote clones. I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, though we very much discussed the fact that we don't think either one of those are Scream clones. Uh, you know, so it ushered in a whole new wave of slasher films and I, I will, will say filmmakers as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it completely defined a, a style and approach for the next generation of, of filmmakers who dabble within this genre. The influence you see from this film. Um, uh, it, it is just everywhere to this day, everywhere. I mean, look at the films that came after it, the urban legends and the, uh, I know what you did last summer's and while they're there, they definitely stand in their own two feet. They act, they definitely took inspiration from what scream put out on the table
0: I would more say that they benefited from the success of Scream, if that makes sense. I feel like the the films were able to be greenlit and make it into theaters because of Scream. Uh, not necessarily that they were like trying to replicate what Scream was, which we know is a at the time was a meta horror film. Urban Legend. Uh, I know what you did last summer. I know I'm missing a couple. There was there was a whole slew of them were not really meta films. The films that were really copying Scream, like copying it in terms of its plot device and its plot structure and the the, the big killer reveal at the end, were your direct-to-video slasher films. Um, such as, I mean, there was a bunch of them. Do You Want to Know a Secret? Uh, school's Out. There was tons of them that were trying to replicate the whole *Who Done whodunit thing. And while Urban Legend had that same element to it, you know. Rebecca Gayhart's amazingly frantic performance in the final killer reveal in *Urban Legend* this, it was really wasn't the same type of of slasher film.
1: I guess I'm I'm leaning more towards the visuals more than anything. In the sense that when I think of of this genre before *Scream*, it was always like gritty and um, it was just you know like you know there's this brought a level of gloss to it that if you look at the films that came after, slashers transitioned to being Hollywoodified, if you will. Um, and that's why movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer and, and Urban Legend were able to be as glossy and as well-produced as they are because you had these bigger companies taking bigger risks with these titles because of the success of Scream. So Scream, I think, along the lines of what you said, it opened the doors for slashers to be considered as uh, hugely marketable.
0: Yeah, well, and you're you're I can see that. You're you're right, because Scream is one of the first also, you know, theatrically released slasher films to actually have a cast of somewhat well-known actors and actresses at the time. I mean, Courtney Cox was in Friends, Nev Campbell's came from Party of Five. Uh so you weren't really seeing that in the 80s. You watch any 80s slasher flicks, and it was mainly a bunch of, I don't want to say nobodies, but n- actors who were you know, this was their first or second role. They had never done anything before. They weren't really well known. So when Scream came on board and you got Drew Barrymore, I mean, come on, and Courtney Cox and David Arcade, you got this amazing cast together. And then the film ended up grossing over $100 million at the, at the U.S. box office. Yeah, you're right. Then these other studios that were. Had these slasher scripts on their desk, were like, okay, yeah, we can do this and we can actually find some recognizable talent. You know, with Urban Legend, you got Rebecca Gayhard. I know what you did last summer. You got Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Geller. I mean, so I do think, yeah, Scream is responsible for that as well, for allowing production companies and studios to put a little bit more money behind the film. And it's still kind of it still kind of is that way today. I mean, look at all these slasher films that have come after scream and you know, you get some, you get some actors that you wouldn't generally think of signing on for a slasher film to actually do slasher films. Um, it was, it became almost like a rite of passage, so to speak for young actresses and actors to appear in a slasher film. I mean, look, I mentioned Sarah Michelle Gellar, but look at like Brittany Murphy who did Cherry Falls and Reese Witherspoon, who did fear,
1: Yeah, yeah. Scream introduced a a level of uh, legitimacy to the franchise that I don't think it really had before that. Because of the cast and because of the level of polish and because of the skilled direction and the phenomenal script, uh, there is just, like I said, there's a level of gloss to this movie that really kind of elevated, and we talk about elevated horror, but it just elevated quality. It elevated our expectations as viewers going forward. The twists are now always bigger. There's always, uh, there's got to be more red herrings. Like Scream really just captured that. It gave us all of those things. You suspect everybody. There's so much potential for people to be killed. The chases are huge. You know, the twists are jaw-dropping. It gives you all of that. And and uh, that all really falls back on, obviously, Kevin Williamson, but also, Clearly, Wes Craven, this power combo that came together to tell a really phenomenal story based on a great script, uh, but represented in a, in a visual way that's just so striking and it looks so sleek and well produced. It's just such a glossy, pretty movie.
0: Yeah. And right from the opening scene, um, we are treated to what has become, I would say, one of the most, if not the most iconic opening scene in horror film history. Can you think of a, an opening scene really that is iconic and as impactful as, as this one? I, I mean, even like I, th- I was thinking about it and I thought, okay, well, you know, I know um, when a stranger calls that has from the seventies, that has a a, a very spine chilling opening scene with poor mousy Carol Kane getting the phone calls about why haven't you checked the children? And then what, I mean, I guess Halloween, the opening to the original Halloween is pretty iconic, but I think this opening scene stands head and shoulders above all of those and is really what hooked audiences and and got them sucked into this film because it did something extremely ballsy uh, in terms of casting Drew Barrymore who at the time was a very well-known actress. I mean, Drew Barrymore has been around forever. I mean, she was in E.T. She was in Firestarter, the original one. I mean, she she did a slew of 80s films. Then she, did, she went into the 90s doing erotic thrillers like Poison Ivy, and then she did some comedies and Never Been Kissed and all that stuff. And I mean, to get her in this film and from that iconic first phone ring and her picking up the phone and with her cherub looking face and her sensible blonde Bob, which is basically the blonde version of Madeline Kahn's Bob in clue. Um, and you know, we're like, Oh look, it's Drew Barry Morrow. Oh, she's going to be our final girl. How sweet. And Oh, how we are wrong.
1: Oh, Oh, how we are fucking wrong. My God! But what a what a genius move to play against the audience's expectations. And you know, as it's come out, it is it has been said that Drew Barrymore was obviously offered the role of Sydney, mm-hmm. but uh, and originally accepted, but uh, schedule issues prevented it from being so. But she loved the script and wanted to be involved, and so she's one of the reasons she suggested taking the role of Casey Becker. And honestly, I think it's just a fucking genius move because, again, yeah, no one's going to expect it, but it also has kind of set a precedence for the films to come after it. The iconic openings that we've come to expect from this franchise. Um, we've seen a lot of girls step into the shoes of the opening kill of within the Scream series, but none can hold a candle to drew Barrymore as Casey Becker. It's just, it's, it, it is in a league of all of its own.
0: And once she picks up that phone and you hear that voice, the very distinct voice. Now that has become again, associated with the franchise, it sends chills up your spine. I mean, the, the, the voice doesn't even have to get malevolent as it, as it gets progressively more malevolent, but even when the, from the first hello, you were like, Oh God, that's a fucking creepy voice. And, you know, it it just, the the scene, what makes this scene so, I think, successful and so impactful is how the tension just builds and builds and builds. I mean, first, the first phone call is very innocent. The person's like, oh, what number is this? And she's like, well, what number are you trying to reach? Uh, And it becomes very innocent. And she's like, oh, you got the wrong number. Sorry, no problem. It happens. And she hangs up. Phone rings again, you know, and you're like, okay, why is this guy calling back? And she's like, even, she even asks them, you know, why'd you dial the the wrong number again? Uh, and it just, these phone calls become progressively more sinister and the voice gets progressively more sinister. And this, this upon this viewing, I really paid attention to the, um, to to kind of the voice acting that Roger Jackson does. And it is very impressive. Very
1: impressive. Yeah. His voice has become synonymous with the series. And I think that, um, that there is a level of uh control and timing that he possesses that is always so spot on because as you said initially he doesn't necessarily sound uh threatening at all but there's still something so intimidating because you recognize the sound of that voice right away um and and i love that initially it is so innocent and the, that opening banter between him and and Drew, it's just so like natural. It just even as when he starts to kind of get into the the, the beefier dialogue about what's your favorite scary movie, when we start to get to this point, uh, it's still controlled enough that she's feeding right into it. She suspects that it's just you know someone playing a casual joke, someone that she knows in this small town. There's no threat factor, at least for her. There's no threat pa- factor to be detected yet. For us though. That voice, we pick up on it the moment he starts speaking. And so there's just something so ominous because you know eventually the shit's going to hit the fan. And oh, how it hits.
0: <laughs> yeah. So after the first couple initial phone calls where they're just having playful banner about him calling the wrong number, she puts on a packet of Jiffy Pop on the stove. Turns the, turns the stove on and the jiffy stop or the jiffy pop starts popping. He calls back. And this time is, is the iconic, what's your favorite scary movie? Because he hears the popcorn pop and he's like, what's that noise? And she's like, oh, it's popcorn. And he's like, oh, you're making popcorn? Mm-hmm. Well, I only eat popcorn when I'm watching a movie. And she's like, well, I'm getting ready to watch a scary movie. And he's like, oh, you like scary movies? And she's like, mm-hmm. And then we get, what's your favorite scary movie? And what does she say? Halloween. You know, the one where the man in the mask stalks the babysitters?
1: I love the way that this is written here. I mean, for multiple reasons. But first and foremost, because it's made clear that while she enjoys scary movies, I wouldn't wouldn't categorize Casey Becker as a, a horror aficionado. She doesn't even know Michael Myers' name. She references him, as you said, as the guy... As the guy in the mask killing babysitters, which like, I mean, first of all, having a Halloween hat tip right away, the fact that this movie exists in a universe where all these other titles do exist, it's so great because there are so many Easter eggs, nonstop, constantly referencing classic titles. It's so fun to listen for them or ways that they like you know, throw little hat tips towards other movies. There's a great one with Nightmare on Elm Street Street coming up later that I know you know the one, Troy. Uh, But yeah, they're just really great in acknowledging all these other films that exist within this universe. And it makes it seem that much more real because they're movies that we as horror fans talk about all the time. But for her, as a casual horror fan, she doesn't even know who Michael Myers is by name. This is going to come into play here in a moment. And it makes her seem very vulnerable.
0: Yeah, and I think the Nightmare on Elm Street line you're, you're you're referencing comes up right now because she asks him what his favorite scary movie is. And he says, "A Nightmare on Elm Street." She's like, "Oh yeah, Freddy, the guy with knives for fingers." And then she makes the little quip that is humorous if you're if you get the intention behind it. She's like, "Yeah, the first one was good, but the rest sucked." <laughs> And we know that's kind of in reference to the fact that Wes Craven directed the first Nightmare on Elm Street, but had nothing to do in terms of directing with any of the sequels except the new Nightmare, right? And then they they, they keep bantering and, she, and, and um, he asks her her name. Um, and she's like, well, why do you want to know my name? And then it comes that stinger of a line because I want to know who I'm looking at. I don't know about you, but the first time I saw that, that's this ugh, sent chills up my spine.
1: When he shifts into a, a, a tone that is seemingly malevolent, because that line is very planted, like he's very aware of what he's saying. And then after that, he tries to act like he said something different, but he knows what he said. The shift in tone is, is palpable. And from this point moving forward, uh, Drew Barrymore, Casey is no longer comfortable with the conversation. She's obviously um, distressed and she wants to stop talking to this person. So she hangs up on him. He's, you know, he calls back. She's trying to hang up on him again. And then before she can hang up, he basically erupts on her. And his voice takes on a sound that he has not possessed yet. And this is a very violent uh, and angry tone. Um, and and this is really the sound that you get from Ghostface moving forward through the majority of this the film and and the the franchise overall. this is his more I would say this is his killer voice when he's going into full killer mode. Um, this really just harsh, loud, uh frantic uh tone and it really is just truly unsettling. If I was on the other end of that phone, I would be horrified. And it does sound very much like a voice that you would get in one of those goddamn voice changers. It, I buy it. Like, I buy everything about it.
0: Well, it's the line. She, yeah, he calls her again and she answers. And she's like, listen, asshole. And he's like, no, you listen, you little bitch. You hang up on me again and I'll gut you like a fish. I mean, it becomes, it goes from like zero to 180 in a split second. And at this point, she is, I mean, like you said, she's frightened. I'd be frightened. She's she's scared shitless. And she's like, is this some kind of joke? And he's like, no, it's more of a game, really. She's like, I'm two seconds away from calling the police. They'll never make it in time. I mean, it's just all these little jabby responses by him that just paint the overall picture of like helplessness, isolation, Dire danger that she's in because we already saw through the opening scene when they kind of close in on the house that this house is like in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah,
1: you get another great moment where she's like, "What do you want?" And he's like, "To see what your insides look like." Like it's <laughs> it's so fucking violent, and it, it really does make it clear that he's uh, he's someone who's going to live up to his threats. Like this is a killer who is built on violence. He's not just looking to like, you know, I mean, he toys with them at first, but once he goes in for the kill, he's not so much looking to play cat and mouse as he's just looking to go in and fucking gut these people and have their organs hanging from the rafters. Like this is the kind of killer. This is the scale of psychopath we're dealing with. Um, And so she gets, of course, she gets so... Uh, meek and terrified. She's hiding in corners and crying and she's like, my boyfriend will be here any second and he'll be pissed when he (laughs) finds out. He's big (laughs) and he plays football and he'll kick the shit out of you! (laughs) Poor Steve. I'm going to tell you he's there but he ain't kicking no shit out of anybody.
0: No, and the the killer's like, oh I'm shaking in my boots. His name wouldn't be Steve would it? She's like, how do you know his name? He's like, turn on the patio lights again. So she goes, turns on the patio lights, and we see poor Steve in his letterman jacket tied to a goddamn pool chair, face duct taped, or a mouth duct taped, face covered in blood. I mean, again, the progression, the escalation of this scene is what makes it so fucking brilliant.
1: Oh, my God. And, you know, I, I'll always... Be curious about the character of Steve. I, I want to know so much more about him because we never even see him without the tape over his mouth. So I don't really know what his face looks like, Other uh, aside from his just terrified eyes. Uh, and he barely says even a word. All you hear from him is muffled behind this tape. But he's still one of the most like iconic horror day players of all time. Poor Steve in that Letterman jacket. Uh, and I've always just been curious. I want to know more about this character. I want to know more about the actor that played him. I want to know uh, his backstory. <laughs> yeah,
0: I do too. It's interesting. You never really hear about, I don't know. I don't know if the actor went on to do anything else or who the actor even is. But I mean, he has the distinction of being the first on on-screen death in the Scream franchise. How How awesome would that be?
1: A lot of people will often say that you know Drew Barrymore is the, the the first kill in Scream, but that's not true. It's Steve. It's Steve. Steve is the first victim.
0: He literally gets gutted because basically the the, the killer wants to play a game, and the game is he's going to ask her a question. If she gets it right, Steve lives. If she gets it wrong, Steve dies. So he begins his little trivia game by asking her name the killer in Halloween. And she's like weeping and crying, I can't, I won't. And she's like, then he dies right now. And she's like, oh, okay. And she's like, Michael, Michael Myers. And he's like, yes, you got it, see?
1: And all, throughout all of this, like the, the, the fact that she's not a complete horror aficionado, like I mentioned before, it's pretty obvious because she's struggling to get these answers. So uh, by the time he asks the second question, which is, uh, who's the killer in Friday the 13th? Uh, and she immediately, she's like, it's Jason. It's Jason. Like, that's that's a question that I hear a lot of people get wrong on a regular basis.
0: Oh, my God. I was just going to say, Roger, do you realize how many people that I, I, that quote unquote are supposed to be huge horror fans that post uh, pictures of their Friday the 13th collection and memorabilia? And I've seen them say that like, the killer in, the, in Friday the 13th, the first one yeah. was Jason. I'm yeah. like, oh, I yeah. roll. I mean, it's it's a very... Common mistake. However, I think that was the brilliance of including it exactly in the script. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think that one of the strongest things about this film overall is the fact that like, it, it—they did their homework. Like they are coming in with such a knowledge of not just horror movies but horror movie fans. When you eventually get introduced to the character of Randy, that's like that is really like. When you understand that the people that created this movie are people that understand the fan base, the die-hard horror fanatics who know every line of every movie and they know there's certain rules that you got to stick to. And, and the fact that they were aware of this when they created this story, this script, is really one of the big reasons this movie works so well. It's so self-aware.
0: It's interesting because if we go back and I haven't, I mean, I haven't listened to some of our earlier episodes forever, but I know for a fact that for some of our specific films that we've covered that we have either you or I have mentioned the fact that, Oh, with this particular film, it's apparent Kevin Williams had had to have seen this film because it's virtually, you know, pulled right from this film or this character's is virtually the same, which we will talk about with Randy when we get to him. Okay. Yeah. So she gets the question wrong. She answers Jason. Jason. And he's like, nope, wrong answer. And she's like, no, I've seen that movie 30 fucking times. And he's like, "Then you know that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer in the original Friday the 13th. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. And all she can say is you tricked me. And I'm like, no, he didn't. He asked you who the killer was in Friday the 13th. He did not trick you. Bitch, you just don't know your movies.
1: Sorry. What would you have happened if she would have gotten this answer right? Is my question.
0: I don't know. You know, I've thought about that. Would he really have just went on? Okay,
1: <laughs> untie like, Steve or we're, we're going on? Like, well, <laughs> fuck me. I guess there goes my plan.
0: However, Roger, knowing who the killer is, and we are, we're gonna we're not gonna, guys, you know who the killers are and scream. Okay, we're not going to pretend like we're. Trying to not spoil it for you. This is a spoiler-laden review. If you haven't seen Scream by now, come on, on. get with the program. But uh, knowing that the, one of the killers is is Stu, right? Uh, it is mentioned that Stu dated Casey Becker, even though he says yeah for like two seconds. So is it possible that he knew, knowing her and going on dates with her or whatever and hanging out, he knew she would get the answer, the question wrong. He knew that she really wasn't a horror movie fan.
1: Oh, I'm sure they strategically picked her. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that the 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 victims over the course of this film for the most part are all uh, uh selected um with k- great care by these two killers. They're very aware of who it is they're killing off because at the end of the day they have, you know, kind of a master plan uh that they're trying to unfold as we will talk about eventually at the end of the film. Um but but you know, I think they were very aware that they're Uh, trying to make this look like it's an ulterior motive. And I think the reason that they did select Casey probably does very much stem from Stu's resentment of what you mentioned, the fact that he dated her briefly, and he's probably a a little pissed off about it.
0: And Ghostface says, you know, sorry, wrong answer. Lucky for you, there's another question, but poor Steve. And all of a sudden you hear like the knife you hear a grunt and you hear like guts spilling out and she turns on the patio light. And Steve is literally just been gutted. His guts are hanging out of his body on the floor in front of him. It's uh, you know, a pretty graphic scene. These killers like gutting people as well. That seems to be their method of choice,
1: right? Yeah. That is a, a very painful way to go out.
0: So he asks her, 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 her particular question. And her question is, What door am I at? Yeah. And she's like, what? And he's like, there's two main doors, the back patio door and the front door. What door am I at? And before she can answer that, a fucking pool chair comes busting through her patio glass. She runs. uh, At this point, the Jiffy Pop popcorn is fucking burning. It's filling the kitchen with smoke. She runs and grabs the knife out of the knife block. And we get kind of the first glimpse of the ghost face costume.
1: I love this shot.
0: Yeah, it's pretty startling. It's pretty startling.
1: It's so brief. Like, you just see it rush by the the doorway very quickly. And it's just like, you just get a hint of it. But it's so fucking startling. Yeah, it, it it's so, like, just uh, intimidating. And one thing I noticed here in this sequence, I, had, I never really picked up on before, but um, Casey is barefoot in this sequence. I don't know if you saw this, but, like. I mean, there's all kinds, of, there's broken glass, there's all kinds of shit going on. And this poor girl, like, not only is she completely desperate here, but she's also like barefoot in the midst of all of that. Like, it just seems like such a, a horrible situation to be in, this poor thing.
0: Well, yeah, she she runs outside and is kind of cowering against the, the house, looking in the window. And we get another shot of ghosts face as he runs through the kitchen. And it's such a cool costume because the the cape the black cape thing is very flowy so when he runs it kind of you know flutters out and it just looks very creepy and you know predator like but as she's outside she notices the headlights of her parents coming down the road so she Makes a beeline towards the front of the house to be able to get to her parents. And I wonder, you know, being at Drew Barrymore, I wonder if this was the moment where people are like, oh, look at her. She's going to be saved. Her parents are coming home. You know what I mean? Like if that people were like, oh, look at, yeah, she's going to be saved. Now she's still going to be our final girl. Woohoo. But no, as she's running to her parents, she has to run past Steve's, you know, viscerated body and she goes, runs. But there's a moment where she looks in the window and we get that. Very effective scare where Ghostface all of a sudden turns around and is staring right at her, and he busts through the window to try to grab her, and she hits him with the uh, with the phone that she's still holding, and then she takes off towards the front of the house to get to her parents, and just as she's reaching the front porch, the the Ghostface killer jumps out of the the, the window and tackles her to the ground.
1: This whole run sequence is such like a landmark horror moment, and I have seen the visual of. Casey Becker getting up, you know, and running across the field as he's chasing behind her in slow motion as he brandishes the knife and proceeds to literally insert it like into her chest. Like you see the knife enter her chest in this slow motion shot as he grabs her. And it's just so like visceral and just really just brutal. Like this whole build up to this kill is so cruel and nasty um, and it's really the last thing you would expect with this character. Again, as you said as we mentioned, being Drew Barrymore you do not anticipate her to be killed off so quickly, let alone so fucking violently it is just vicious and to make it even worse, the whole bit with the parents as she sees the parents coming in trying to call out for them only to be you know stabbed again and mounted by the killer and just completely destroyed. I mean, he wrecks this girl
0: as her mother ultimately is listening to everything happening on the phone because the parents run into the house. They see, they see the broken glass. They see the jiffy pop now burning. They, and they're calling out for Casey. She's nowhere around. So the mother grabs the phone to call nine one one, but Casey is still on the line. And it's the moment where she hears Casey being stabbed. And grunting and crying out. And uh, you get the line where the dad is like, Go down to the street to the McKenzie's, which is right from Halloween. And as the mother goes to the porch and swings the door open to run outside, she lets out a very guttural, emotional scream. And we get a quick zoom in on what is Casey Becker's dead body hanging from a rope from a swing from the tree out in the front yard. And it is, again, I'm going to keep saying the word iconic, but it is one of the more iconic shots from a horror film of the last 30 years, probably. I mean, it's so gross.
1: I mean, I'm sorry. Cherry Falls. No,
0: her her guts are hanging out. There's steam coming out of them. It is just disgusting, gnarly, gnarly. And we cut to Sidney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell.
1: Nev Campbell. Again, as Sidney Prescott is, it's just so pure and demure. And her, I mean, her evolution over the films is really something to enjoy. But focusing on this movie specifically, uh, again, as a final girl in general, she sets the bar high because this movie gives us so much time with this character. We are pretty much, by Sydney's side, the majority of the film, the, the vast majority of the film. We're, we're really sticking to hor- her story, and the other characters are just kind of revolving around her universe. But she is just such a presence in this film, and so likable. And this opening scene with her, and her banter with Billy as he Dawson creaks his way through her window, very of the era. The chemistry between the two of them, it just it's, it's palpable. It's there. And she's so sweet, and exudes this innocence and and you learn, as you know, the movie progresses, you kind of learn where that's coming from and why she's so resistant. But it's just very elegantly played, very well played. Uh, I think it's because Nev Campbell herself has a certain level of poise and control and elegance whenever you see her speak in general. And that really translates to this character.
0: Well, and I do like that it is a very sweet moment. Initially, it's a very sweet moment. Uh, between Nev Campbell or between Sidney Prescott and Billy Loomis, because I think that at this point the audience is still trying to catch their breath from the opening scene. So you wanted it to transition into something a little bit more tender so the audience can settle down. Because, yeah, uh, Billy Loomis looking Johnny Depp like and, yeah, doing his Dawson's Creep pop in comes into her window and he um, proceeds to tell her right after her dad, her dad hears her scream. So her dad comes in the room and there is this very subtle thing that happens that comes into play later when her dad tries to open her bedroom door, her closet door, which is right next to her bedroom door is open. So when her dad opens the bedroom door, it catches on the closet door. So it will not open. It's like a accidental barricade. But we find out her father is going away for the weekend for work and he's staying at the Hilton at the airport and he to call her if he needs anything or for her to call him if he, if she needs anything, father leaves and we get Billy popping up with the stuffed animal. And he says his reason for visiting is because he was at home watching the exorcist and it got him thinking about her. And she's like, it did. And he's like, Yeah. It was made for television, so all the, or it was edited for television, so all the good stuff was taken out. And basically, what he's getting at is they have not had sex. Because of something that happened, she, their relationship in terms of intimacy has gotten even worse. In a roundabout way, even though, like, he is, like, trying to act like he's not there to try to get some, that's what he's really trying
1: to do. Oh, absolutely. And he's so, like, I mean, Skeet Ulrich, first of all, is is sexy and sexier with age. He ages like a fine wine. Gimme, gimme, gimme some of that.
0: He looks he looks better. He looks way better now than he did. then. Can I can I be the can I be like the descent gay and say that I've I I was never like I never thought Skeet Ulrich was attractive in Scream? Like at all.
1: I can hear that. I could hear that. Just He he
0: never did it for me. Never did it for me. I thought I mean, I just never did but it.
1: But I like me. him as an actor. I like his presence. You I know? do.
0: He's great and you know he has that jo- Johnny Depp look that Wes Craven is obviously a fan of. Uh, but he is charming to an extent like I still think that there is this like thread of just like sleaziness. The, sleaziness. Yeah that runs through this Billy Loomis character and I don't know if that's Part of the reason why I just never was on the, oh, Billy Loomis is so hot bandwagon. Yeah.
1: Well, and you also got to keep in mind, Skeet Ulrich, before this, had a very similar kind of, if anything, even more like unlikable character in The Craft. The Craft, yeah. With also featuring one Nev Campbell. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, but I think he kind of fell into this this kind of character mold for a bit of playing like just this unlikable dickish kind of male character that has these undercurrents of just um uh, uh traits that you really find kind of like skeezy. Uh and and this character is skeezy from the moment you see him. And even when he's saying the whole thing about I just thought we could do a little of the on top of the clothes stuff. Like you know like it's so like, yeah, I just thought I could get up and rub on your jugs for a bit. Like it just is so gross, you know.
0: I know, but do you notice what he does when she agrees? Is like he immediately starts to try to lift her her little granny nightgown up and is trying to like finger her. And she's like, Nope, that's enough. Yeah. I'm like, dude, it was like, you didn't even last 20 seconds before you're trying to finger this poor girl. Like, good lord. And so she uh tells him he has to leave. And as he's leaving, she makes this cute little comment about, Oh, would you settle for a PG 13 relationship? And he's like, What's that? And she flashes her little Nev Campbell boobies. We don't see him, but he does. And he just chuckles.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate her character. I appreciate the fact that she's trying to maintain a certain level of dignity. Like, you know, it's very much kind of a, an evolution off of the trope of the final girl always being so pure. Like, they, they definitely give us that here, but they give us that with a personality. Like, she's very much a, a fleshed out. Develop character and there's a lot of reasoning for why sydney operates the way sydney does as we explore uh as we go further into the film
0: well the next day sydney arrives at woodsboro high it is complete chaos there are reporters everywhere cops everywhere and we get introduced to tatum played by rose mcgowan who I know right now is a kind of a polarizing figure, but hey, back then she wasn't, okay? She was innocent little Rose McGowan. Uh, and, you know, Sydney's like, what's going on? And, and Tatum's like, you haven't heard? Casey Becker and Steve Orth were murdered last night. And we're not just talking murder, we're talking splatter, splatter movie murdered. They were ripped open from top to bottom. And, you know, she even tells them that their parents, that Sid, uh, Casey's mom found her hanging from a tree with her outsides. With her insides on the outside, uh, so Tatum is set up to be the the you know the devoted sidekick, best friend, and you know I think that Rose McGowan fits the part pretty pretty well. She's serviceable as, as Tatum. She does she does some things with the character that I really appreciate. We also see our first glimpse of the lovely lime greened Gale Weathers.
1: Oh golly! Well, one thing I really want to focus on with this review is a um, a rating system for Gale Weathers' wardrobe choices. For her wardrobe, which, <laughs> which will expand throughout all of um all of the re- the reviews we do for every Scream movie moving forward. Outfit number one, the the quintessential Gale Weathers wardrobe piece, if you will. This is honestly one of the defining ensembles. Uh, That makes Gail Weathers Gail Weathers, much along the lines of the short, choppy bangs from Scream 3. I mean, this is one of her defining looks. It's a lime green power suit, matching miniskirt. It boasts exaggerated shoulder pads and a fitted waist. What an intro. Five out of five. Right off the bat, so I'm I'm am I'm a, a fan of this costume, of this suit. It's great. Um,
0: <laughs> I love a woman in lime green. I love lime green.
1: Uh, who selected this color for her? I, mean, I don't know, but it doesn't look good on anybody. But it looks, it's, hey, it's it pops. It's, it pop- God, how it pops! I mean, you can't look away from it. But it's great. I mean,
0: she is she stands out on that you know high school campus there in, in that lime green ensemble. And yeah, you're right. It is the very. It is the, I think, the outfit she's associated the most with because anytime you see Gale Weather dolls or figures, they're she, they're always wearing that lime green. <laughs> so on so, aggressive,
1: so <laughs> aggressive on camera, like you'd think someone would say something to her, but uh, you know, whatever. It's what makes her her, and I love her so much. I can't, I can never complain. I love everything she does. I love that bright red lipstick. Uh, I love her. Um, but one thing I really also enjoy about just. The, the way the Scream movies approaches the events that transpire is the media presence is always like bustling and it always makes everything feel like such a big to do. And this first murder, it's like the talk of the town. I mean, there are news crews from all around gathering around the school campus and it's clearly like a hot fucking story. And that's like an aspect that the Scream movies have always carried through. Every single one of their entries, the the, the media presence, the involvement of the news and like bloggers and everything that's always been very connected and like intertwined in every storyline. And I just love how present it is. I love how much chaos is going on. It makes things feel very high stakes, a term you guys know I love, but it just adds to everything for me.
0: I think that was part of Kevin Williamson. When he wrote the script for Scream, uh, he was inspired by a serial killer Uh, or a spree killer, serial killer, serial killer Uh, in the 90 90 or 91 called the nickname the Gainesville Ripper. Danny Rollins was his name. And there was a point over a course of two days, three days at the University of Florida in Gainesville that he brutally murdered like five, five coeds. And when we talk about brutally murdered, if you guys want to hear some disgusting stuff, then you need to just Google the Gainesville ripper and, and read what he did to these victims. We were talking about some of the most horrific things I've ever heard. Kevin Williamson heard that story and it was a, it was like a national news frenzy and the, the university of Florida in Gainesville very much became a media circus. Like kids were leaving every major news outlet was down there reporting because I mean, they, there was a killer on the loose. Um, and these brutal murders were happening in a in a in a span of a, a, a literally every night m- kids were being murdered and so long story short it was a huge media circus it made the it made people magazine the, the front page of people magazine it was all over the news if you looked if you were at the university of florida in Gainesville the whole grounds were nothing but media outlets so i think that that may have it may have leaked over into the script to have such a prominent media presence Um, in a film like this or a news presence because it's not something you typically see in a slasher movie.
1: No, but I think you, Troy, I think you can agree with this as a fan of true crime. You know that when it comes to these true life scenarios, uh, they are carried by the news and the media. I mean, it is such an element of of what's going on. And I think you're absolutely right in saying that Scream is one of the first slashers to really uh, have it be present at least to the extent that we're seeing it, and it greatly benefits the 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 film and the overall like believability factor of what's going on.
0: Oh, precisely because how many slasher films have we've seen that have taken place at schools or you know in small towns where literally over the course of weeks several people are being murdered and then they're just going on their their daily lives like nothing happened, <laughs> nothing's getting closed down. I mean, so this was a very realistic portrayal of, for lack of a better term, a media circus, a media circus that would very much be in line with what you would expect in a small town that just had two brutal murders on the almost one year anniversary of another horrifically brutal murder that this town saw. Of course, the media would be there and they would be super aggressive like Gail Weathers and like little Linda Blair and her cameo. The people have a right to know. So after this, Sydney gets called into the principal's office um, from her English class, where she is very cognizant of the fact that Casey Becker's desk next to hers empty, so she goes and we meet we meet Sheriff Burke for the first time, and we meet Deputy Dewey Riley, David Arquette, who has become a staple of the franchise.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's portrayed in a very specific way in this film, and it's one of those things that, like, uh, since I haven't watched the original Scream in a while, I've, I didn't really take. Uh, into account how much his characters evolved over the course of five movies like you know I've always found the character of Dewey slightly annoying but that's supposed to that's like I think part of just who he is I don't take it to be a negative aspect of Dewey he's just bumbling and kind of always fucking things up and fumbling but well-intentioned and that's why he's such a likability factor but by Scream 5 I mean this guy has been through it and um There's so much evolution that happens. So coming back to this and seeing him so fresh faced and youthful and he's supposed to be what, like 25? I mean, like he's (laughs) when he's hitting on this older woman. I mean, it's it's you know, I used to think that he was a character that really annoyed me, but he's very endearing. He's, like I said, well-intentioned and genuinely cares about the other people around him. Um, and so I, I enjoyed Dewey during this viewing. I thought he added a like a levity and a sense of humor that the film um, does very well with.
0: I'm kind of the opposite, to be honest with you, in terms of, well, not where you're at now, but where you were at. Like, I've always liked Dewey in Scream 1. And then as the films went on, he progressively annoyed me more and more. Um, I feel like almost that it was a character that, you know, Kevin Williamson And then ultimately like Aaron Kruger, who wrote the script for scream three, they really didn't know what to do with him after this first film. Because if you don't know, Dewey was supposed to die. Like in the original script, Dewey dies. They, they shot it. He died. And what they, they, they let him live because the first initial screen tests, the audience, did not like the fact that he died, which I get it. He's a super likable character in this film. There's like that childlike innocence that he even mentions himself. But I feel like, you know, if if you have a franchise planned out in your mind, right? You know, me and you have written films. We we, we kind of think about it this way. And there is a character that was in the first film that's prominent character. But didn't you already have the ideas for all of the sequels that come after it or the trilogy, right? and he does, he's not part of the second or third one. But then because you know the studio changes the ending to the first film to allow him to live and you have to bring him back for the second film that he really never was supposed to be in in the first place, I feel like that might be a little bit of a challenge to bring that character in and, and try to flesh him out. Because if you already had an idea of where you were going with the plot, and it didn't involve him having to put him in there and kind of shoehorn shoehorn him in, could be a little bit difficult. And I think that that might equate to why I feel like Dewey is the most inconsistently written character, and most inconsistent character in terms of character traits throughout the entire franchise. I will say, and I know I said we weren't going to talk about the sequels, what they did with him in the last Scream film, I really liked. Me too. Me too. So, but th- but two, three, and four, he annoyed the fuck. He started to annoy the fuck out of me. I mean, it was just the character was all over the place. Like Dewey, even from t- even from scream to scream, two, it's not. Um, it's virtually almost not the same character. In, in some respects. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at there. But we are introduced to, to to lovely Dewey and and Sheriff, who, you know, we we keep getting hinted at that something bad happened to Sydney or somebody, her mother. A year prior. It's not really revealed here yet, but they are all very like walking on eggshells with talking to Sydney about what just happened. You know, nobody there is like accusing her, nobody there is really thinking she did anything. It's just the fact that they're calling every student in. So it's like lip service, but they're very being very sensible and, and aware to her and what she's gone
1: through. We do have to acknowledge here that um, we do get a, a, a great, um, larger than a cameo, not quite a supporting role, the principal. <laughs> is played by uh, the, the iconic Henry Winkler the Fonz, who is great in any any role he takes on. I mean he is such a great actor and such a likable guy. I always love anything I see with Henry Winkler uh, in general and and the way he is in this this role um he's definitely kind of a prick. And he acts all very holier than thou when he's in front of the kids but then you get to see a little bit of him behind the scenes and he's really just kind of a fucking dick um, but he's so good at it he does these weird little things that are like these little quirks like he at one point like, like caresses Sydney's chin and it's like no no principal would get away with that like today at all like he like he like cups it in his fingers he's like everything will be fine and, and so creepy he's just such a creepy character but it it works well it works well in the context of everything that's going on
0: well even when when he does that the the sheriff even gives him kind of a questionable look you know everyone's a suspect so you have to give all these characters certain little things that make you think "Uh uh-oh he's a he's creepy could he be the killer Uh, after this scene you, you we go to the iconic there's that word again but i'm telling you the iconic scene where the our group of our group of young kids are sitting in front of the fountain. So you have Stu, you have them all there. Billy was with Sydney. You have uh, Stu and Tatum, and you have uh, Randy.
1: So many films, I think, have tried to capture this this setup sequence, like. When you think of like an introduction sequence to a group of focal characters, I can't think of a film that does it better. Like they they pop these beautiful model esque individuals, all Caucasian. It is surprising how white these people are, but um, other than that, they're all very beautiful and they're all great in their roles. I gotta say that like everyone here is perfectly cast. The chemistry between these kids is just. It's electric, and I think that's why it translates so well. And and yeah, it's it's really it's iconic because the chemistry here is just so fire between these people.
0: Oh, their banner back and forth feels so natural, you know. And 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 this is when we find out that Stu actually dated Casey, and that's when he says, "Oh yeah," for like two seconds. You know, it's just yeah. You're right. Their chemistry, their interactions with the, each other is just off the charts and you know, even in some of these subsequent films that have come after this, that n- none of them have been able to capture like the, the energy and the magic of this particular cast. I think Sydney does ask, how could you, how do you gut somebody? And Stu gives his little ominous. Well, you take a knife and you shove it in and you cut them from groin to sternum. And Billy's like, it's called tactic. wall. I
1: got to say that I um, like around this era of my life, I have had, um, I had such a prominent crush on Matthew Lillard. uh, Because I I don't know, it's just something about me so lanky, you know, he's got a big fucking dick. Like there's no way that fucker isn't well endowed. I can't imagine it being otherwise. And he's just like, got like a goofiness to him. But um, this character really like it just plays off of all of his his skill sets, all of his talents, his sense of humor. I I think Stu is one of the most believable characters in this film because he just seems like such like a kind of shitty, like asshole-ish college student who just is kind of uh, like the jokester of his social circle and always making jabs at people and a little bit off. And as we learn actually at the end of the movie, very off. But um, he he channels all of these traits into this character to make a very believable depiction of, of someone who I believe would, be capable of doing the things he ends up doing. It all makes sense after everything comes out who the killers actually are, you know? And, and if you watch Stu's quirks and how he interacts with people and how his eyes get when he talks about certain things and talks about like, you know, certain acts of violence and everything, like there's little things that are done by him and, and, and by both characters, by Billy as well, that um I think if you go back, you revisit it. It's very clear. The characters who are, you know, behind the mask—you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their body language. They, sometimes they don't have the restraint uh, they think they do.
0: Yeah, I like the Stew character. I love the that he brings these just hilarious mannerisms and and one to the character just to add that much more depth to the Stew character. He does also make a joke about you know, well. Randy is like, is it true they found her liver in the mailbox? Because I found, I heard they found her liver in the mailbox next to her spleen. And Tata's like, oh, shut up, you know. And, and Stu's like, oh, you better, you're, you're making her mad, Randy. You better live her alone. Get it? liver alone?
1: <laughs> oh, my God. The, all of these characters have great senses of humor, to be honest. This movie, this franchise is built off of. Uh, elements of humor. Scream has never been completely dry and totally serious. Um, And so it it does well having actors involved who are, you know, comedians at heart. I mean, same with Randy, you know, Jamie Kennedy, he really thrives uh, in in moments in which he has to be funny. And so they made the character funny and it does him very well. And the little voices he does and everything, It, 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 it works great. As we said, the chemistry is fantastic. I I like even little moments like there's a transition here that cuts to the school bus pulling up to drop off Sydney. And they even managed to make like these little transitions ominous because there's like a stinger, like a dramatic stinger to the school bus. (laughs) And it's like it shouldn't be scary, but it still feels like it is. Uh, But this does lead into a, a really cool sequence where you you first you see Sydney's home, which is on a beautiful plot of land with these rolling hills trees my god take me there beautiful
0: what's her dad do what i know what her dad does for a living this house is it's isolated it's on like a bluff and it just overlooks the hills of woodsboro beautiful it's
1: beautiful And, and so sydney is she's she's chatting with tatum she's going out later she sits down she watches some tv and of course gail's just already being a bitch Talking about Maureen Prescott being brutally raped and murdered. And Sydney's done with it. She doesn't want to hear about it, her mother being raped and murdered. So she mopes for a moment, recollecting times with her deceased mother, who is photographed around the house. And as the sunset, she she passes out and, and she wakes up to a phone call from Tatum, who is on her way to pick her up
0: but she's going to stop at the video store first because she's going to rent all the right moves with Tom Cruise because, you know, if you pause it just right, you can see his penis.
1: Oh, my God. Remember the days, Troy, where it, it was that desperate? Like You literally had to like, get a VHS oh, from the video yeah. store that you know had a dick <laughs> hidden in it, fast-forward it, and then pause it so you could jack off to a still frame of a penis.
0: These young gays do not know how what good they have it. I'm telling you. Oh,
1: my God. You, literally. Right now, I could be watching porn. You guys wouldn't even know it. I could literally just be sitting here watching porn on my phone. It's so easy. Back then, you're watching all the right moves, looking for Tom Tom Cruise's fucking penis you
0: were looking for Tom Cruise's penis I was hold I was holding a recorder up to my radio so that I could record a Mariah Carey song when it came on the radio
1: (laughs) was it hero was it you (laughs) like sitting there weeping Mariah Carey's hero it was
0: was emotion.
1: (laughs) oh of course Oh, a classic I I understand why I mean god I get the desperation with that Um, all of this does though build up to what is, I think, a really great uh, sequence, an introduction uh, for Sydney to be a, a, a target of Ghostface. This scene really sets the groundwork for what ends up being Ghostface's sole purpose over the course of this movie. It's really to kind of make Sydney the focus of everything he's doing.
0: Oh, it's a great scene. This whole scene is just wonderful. And the, the backdrop of this large, isolated house, and you get shots of just the hills beyond as the sun has set it and it's dark and there's no lights on in the house. She went, after she hangs up from Tatum, and the voice just says, Hello, Sydney. And she's like, uh, Hello. And who is this? And she, and he's like, do you like scary movies? And she thinks it's Randy. Ultimately, she ends up thinking it's Randy because Randy is a horror movie nerd, as we come to find out. Um, and she's like, no, you know I don't like that shit. It's just some big-breasted girl who can't act, who's always running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. It's insulting.
1: Eventually, this dialogue again unfolds to reveal that it's clearly not Randy. It, when the killer basically says to Sidney, the question isn't, who am I? The question is, where am I? And so Sydney steps outside because she's convinced the killer's bluffing. She does this whole thing where she pretends to be picking her nose, saying like, "What am I doing? What am I doing?" And and the the killer, you know, he he bluffs; he doesn't follow up. Uh, and so she goes back inside the house, and this is when Sydney is attacked. She's attacked with the killer who has been inside the closet.
0: He jumps out of the closet and attacks her. Yeah. Throws her down on the ground. Gets ready to bashes her head into the floor. Even gets ready to stab her, and she kicks him in the nuts. Runs upstairs. He follows her, and she gets to her room. And this is the point where she shuts the door and opens the closet door so that um, the killer can't get in. The door is blockaded. It's barricaded. She tries to call nine one one. The phone's off the hook, so she does it on her computer. And just as she types in, you know, nine one one, what's your emergency? Billy pops through the window and comes into the room and she's frantic. She's like, the killer's here, Billy, the killer's here. And as she's hugging him and he's embracing, him, he's like, Oh, it's all right. It's all right. A cell phone falls out of his pocket. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh,
1: coming up to this moment, like leading up to this point, one thing about Sydney that I kind of do want to take a moment to sh- you know, shine a light on. And, and acknowledge would be the fact that from right off the bat, Sydney is a character who knows how to defend herself. I think one of the reasons that so many fanboys and girls adore Sydney Prescott is because she has always been capable, she's always thought fast, and um, she's always acted. Uh, in her best interest, whenever she's being attacked or defending herself, I think one of the things that the latest scream did really well—and not to go off on a tangent because I'm not going to—but it, it let it kind of let us have a moment where it's like, by this point, girl is done. This ain't her first rodeo, and and she is still a badass to this day. And I love that they've maintained that aspect of who Sydney is because I really do think that is one of the defining traits of Sydney Prescott that draws so many people in. She is capable and she will kick ass and you, you want to see that from her. I think we cheer for Sydney Prescott because she never half asses it. She's getting thrown down steps. She's getting thrown out windows onto boats. She's running, she's fighting, she's bleeding. She always gets her ass kicked but she doesn't give the fuck up. She always gets back up and you want to see her win.
0: Well, and she's bold like when the killer first calls her and tells her, you know, there's that moment where she, where she's like, "Well, where are you?" and he's like, Your front porch. And she's like, why would you be calling from my front porch? He's like, that's the original. But anyways, she actually has the balls to go out there and open the door, go out on the front porch. And it's like, I'm calling your bluff. And then there's that very ominous moment where she gets ready to hang up on him. And he's like, don't you hang up on me, you little bitch, or I'll kill you just like your mother. Do you want to die, Sydney? Your mother sure did. And she's like, fuck you, you cretin. I mean, yeah, she's very... There's, she's not. You're not going to frighten her. She's going to go out and she's going to confront you, which, it really, is a, a unique trait to give your, you know, your final girl because generally we're used to them being meek and mild and not stepping up and until they absolutely have to.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, she's she's definitely a character who has always had inner strength, and they've allowed her to explore that and uh, develop that and. Evolve upon that over the course of the movies. And so that's why I I always enjoy seeing Nev Campbell in these kinds of roles because she just she gets it and she's a former dancer. So whenever you see girl fall into a situation or a position where she's having to uh, be physical. And fight. I mean, there is always an elegance to it. She can really make it seem like it's really physical and brutal. She's just really good at fight sequences in general. Nev Campbell is always giving it her all in these sequences.
0: Well, she sees the cell phone and she thinks that obviously it's an ominous sign that Billy is the c- killer. So she takes off running. She runs downstairs. She opens the front door to run out. And it's that scene where Dewey is standing at her front door holding. The ghost face mask in a weird, awkward position. I don't know why he would be doing that. And he screams and she screams. And ultimately what, what ends up happening is Billy gets arrested. Gail shows up and you know is like, is that Sidney Prescott? Tell us what's happened. And Tatum's like, no, leave us alone. You're a pain in the ass.
1: Look, Kenny, I realize that you're about 50 pounds overweight. <laughs> but when I say hurry, please interpret that as move your fat tub of lard ass now. <laughs> yes, I love her. I love it. God, I love her. I get why the gays respond to Gale Weathers, and I will, I will celebrate Courtney Cox's ever-evolving plastic face for as long as I can. She's so good in this role.
0: She is this ring. I mean, again, this is a role that was just made for her. It fits her like a glove, and she just inhabits the Gale Weathers character so, so well. Uh, so they take Sydney to the police station. Her dad is not registered at the Hilton. and they can't locate him. Um, and the sheriff is interrogating Billy, asking him why he would have a cell phone. Uh, and you know, the Billy's dad is there with him and is like, why don't you just trace the numbers? And the sheriff's like, Oh, thank you. We're on that. Okay. And, uh, you know what he, there is this moment also when after they're, after the sheriff is done questioning Billy, that Billy turns around and like, Glares at Sydney, like with a very scowling, uncomfortable look.
1: I love um, overall, I, I love this whole moment kind of evolving within the, the police station because it is allowing the media moment to develop and grow. Uh, and be, it's clear that this is becoming a bigger to do, and individuals like Gail are really feeding into it. Uh, because they also have their own personal kind of reasons for it to, wanting it to um, blow up into something big, which is such like a, a unique angle to Gail's character because she's such an anti-hero in a way. Like she makes some really awful choices. She's really selfish. Like she really like uh, she doesn't seem to really care about people for the most part until you get to know her better. But it does come across that she's really kind of like just wanting to capitalize off of all of this. And so with this whole thing with the jail. As everything's going on inside with like Nev, you know, not being able to face Billy, who's just glaring at her through a window, um, eventually leading up to this moment where Nev does have a, a confrontation with Gail, uh, it's, it's immensely satisfying. <laughs> like what, what ends up happening is so fucking satisfying because uh, it, it ends up basically that, that Tatum and Sydney decide that they're going to sneak out the back. To leave, to avoid the media circus that's happening outside. And, of course, fucking Gail and Kenny come sneaking around the corner and they see them and they come running up. And there's this really tense, awkward moment there between the two girls where basically, you you know something's going on already. It's been kind of implied, but uh, but finally you have Sydney kind of turn to Gail and say, "How's the book?" And Gail's like, "Oh, it'll be out later this year." And Sydney's like, I'll look for it. I'll send you a copy. And Sydney just fucking right hooks the girl to the jaw and drops her to the fucking ground. And you're like, yes, bitch. You're like, yes, this is the kind of broad I want to root for. Yes. like I love it. It's so good. Especially
0: when you, you know, you know, the reason why she, she initially is why Sydney is initially so upset. It it makes sense. Although we got to say Gail was right. (laughs) I mean, she was right about cotton and the weary the whole time. So
1: such an interesting angle for that, to be honest, when you think about it, because like you you know you love the character of Sydney you think she's you know all wonderful and pure but she also did falsely accuse a man of murder like this is a this is a uh, layer to her onion and so uh, it does make her seem rather flawed you know though she's a great person and a great character she's also made her own mistakes
0: which you know she feels guilty about uh, as we find out in, in some of the subsequent films. In uh, Tatum, you know they go back to Tatum's house. They're they're in her room. Tatum is all excited that Sydney's a you know a, a bad bitch for bam bitch went down. I'll send you a copy. Bam bitch went down. Sid super bitch. Anyways, she gets a call. Sydney, uh, Tatum's mom comes in the bedroom and's like, oh, it's a phone call for Sid. So Sydney goes out and answers the phone, thinking it's could be her dad or she doesn't know. And we get the voice, "Hello, Sydney." And we are just like, oh fuck! And the voice is like, "poor Billy boyfriend, looks like you fingered the wrong guy again." Sydney's like, "Oh my god!" And Dewey rushes in with his gun. You know, like I like the when he picks up the he takes the phone from Sydney, he picks it up, and he's like, in a very stern voice, "Hello." Uh,
1: The next morning, we hear the name Cotton Weary. This starts to come into play, and it's uh, one of the one of the really great things I think about the series in general is how it has lots of plot points and lots of themes that are allowed to develop over multiple movies. Cause the character of Cotton Weary is, is uh, very much just like a, a side note overall over the, the course of this whole film. And the fact that he becomes a bigger role as the movie progresses is, is I think really like a great developmental tool for making this, this whole universe feel really rich and connected. Uh, but you hear the name for the first time. It's a very important name in the overall Scream mythology. Uh, we also learned that Billy's phone records came back clean.
0: Uh, I do, yeah. I mean, having the Cotton character become such a prominent part of, you know, the Scream franchise again, I think it was it was obviously careful planning on Kevin Williams' part when he was writing the treatments for the for the trilogy. I mean, so it is. It's really interesting to see how much. He wasn't in this first film. I mean, we literally get one news one news video of him getting in the back of a police car is all we get of Cotton Weary and Scream 1. But then he comes back for, for two and three. and It's just such a prominent force in those films. Well, two, maybe not three so much. So he uh, Dewey takes Sydney, drops her off at school again, full of news anchors and, and camera crews, including Linda Blair who attacks, like, runs up, what's it feel like to be almost brutally butchered? <laughs> what a question to ask some poor girl just trying to go to class. People want to know. They have a right to know. I love that they gave little Linda Blair something to do other than you know promote her animal welfare thing that she does, which I love, but um, I'm glad she got to come and be part of another iconic horror franchise, even if it is a cameo.
1: Well, this whole franchise is notorious for phenomenal cameos. I mean, Carrie fucking Fisher. Yeah. I mean, come on now. You don't get better than that. You don't get better than that. No, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, I love it as well. And I um, there's one little thing just because we haven't even really touched on the score, which is fucking phenomenal beginning to end. But I really love the score. I think it's really great when Sydney arrives at the school and confronts Gail. Outfit number two, by the way, a great coat, not quite the electric green, four out of five.
0: Yeah, is this the red jacket? This
1: is the red jacket. Yeah. Sensible. It does go to a five out of five when we throw the jacket, the like the, the gold jacket on later. Then that f- completes the ensemble. Yeah,
0: so Sydney decides to go confront Gail. And this is when we find out Sydney's hostility towards Gail stems from her writing a book. And in the book, Gail blatantly... Call Sydney a liar and 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 is is putting forth the theory that cotton Weary was framed and that Sydney Prescott misidentified him on the stand you know Sydney's like no he killed my mother I saw him leave the house wearing that jacket and and Gail's like no you saw someone leave the house wearing that j- jacket the same someone that planted it in the back of his car framing him Sydney's like no you're wrong. And Gail can see some hesitation in Sidney's face. So she recognizes the fact that Sydney might not be so sure anymore that Cotton Weary was the killer of her mother. And Tatum comes and gets Sidney and takes her away. Sydney apologizes; She's like, I'm sorry I mangled your face. <laughs> and Gail is just thrilled. She's like, oh my God, Kenny, an innocent man in jail and I can free him? I could change a man's life, and Kenny like gets a smile on his face, like, oh my god, this woman actually has a soul. And then she's like, Do you know what that could do for my book sales?
1: She here here we are, the anti-hero. She's very self-obsessed, but I still fucking love her. I got I can't get enough of her. I I love also any moment of dialogue between between these two gals because their relationship evolves so much. Over the course of the whole franchise, but at this point, like they're very cold towards each other. They're very distant. Uh, Sydney obviously has issues with Gale, understandably so. Um, so this is a relationship that I really love to see, uh, kind of what it flourishes into, especially within this last movie. Like if they got one thing right, it was it was that camaraderie. Give me more of that. Uh, but two strong, powerful women, and when they're on camera together, they they play off each other very very well.
0: Inside the school, there are kids that are running around in the ghost face costume, just running down the hallway screaming. Uh, It bothers Sydney. So she, while she's talking to Stu and Tatum, she's like, why are they doing this? And Stu's like, are you blind? Look, at it's like Christmas in here. So Sydney takes off running down the hallway because she's like, I would, I mean... How I a mean, bit, but I guess they're kids, but come on, like, how shitty of a thing is that to do? Which, which it also really pisses off Principal Himbury, Hem- as we find out here in a few minutes. Uh, but as Sydney's running down the hall, she bumps into Billy, and they have this confrontation where you know, if I didn't really think Billy was an asshole based on the first scene of the film, this is where it kind of cements it for me because he basically tells her that he or that she needs to get over the fact that her mother's dead. His mother left him and he got over it. And Sydney's like, uh there's a big difference. Your, your mother left you. You can still talk to her or visit her. My mother's laying in a coffin. And so this just irritates her even more. So she She's like, fuck you, she takes off. And you know, he's like she's like, Sydney, come back. And she's like, I'm sorry that my traumatized past is an interruption to your you and your perfect existence. Very much Dawson's Creek like dialogue. Can we also state that? There are so many lines in this film that sound like they were ripped right from Dawson's Creek. And that is one of them. That is something that Joey would say in Dawson's Creek.
1: Oh, I've got to say I like I, you know I love everything that Nev Campbell touches but I do prefer Anna Ferris's delivery of I'm sorry <laughs> my traumatized life is an inconvenience for you and your perfect existence <laughs> And she like does it in scary movie and she like runs off with her hands flailing yes. over, I, I I love it, I love it. But yeah, I mean, very Dawson's Creek. I love
0: Anna Faris's <laughs> his performance in in Scary Movie too. I mean, I just love Anna Faris. <laughs> but I mean, I th- I think people might have forgotten that that's kind of where she got her big start at was b- yeah. being the Sydney Prescott of Scary Movie, and she nailed it.
1: She nailed it so well. It's so fucking good. Henry Winkler, we get more of him as Principal uh, Henry. He's so aggressive to these students, these two male students. Again, this would not fly at all these days as he's like physically accosting these two men and threatening their lives and calling them pieces of shit. Like, with a
0: <laughs> pair of scissors. He's like chopping at them with the scissors. No, fair would be to gut you little bastards. And yeah, he's calling them. <laughs> pieces of shit and that he should gut them and i mean i don't know i i I feel like the sole purpose of this scene was to paint him as like okay this is a killer because you were right even in the 90s i mean this was 96 that would not fly
1: that would not fly. No, no, absolutely not.
0: I mean today, god god forbid today you even say you even look at a kid wrong and your fucking parents are gonna be up at the school demanding that you be fired. I think Trust we need me. to be a
1: little more nineteen ninety-six these days, to be real. I mean yeah. at least in the schools. I think I think we could afford to get a little more Henry Winkler. Uh, not not maybe to that extreme, but
0: don't get me started, Roger, because I'm in education and I, I we know we know Right now, that there is a major teacher shortage in this country. <laughs> teacher shortage. See, and I want to throw that out there. I was super smart to name my film "Teacher oh Shortage" because the time it, there is there is a huge teacher shortage. So when people are googling teacher shortage, <laughs> my movie comes up. Um, but no, it's and it is because and everyone's trying to make these. Outlandish excuses for why teachers are leaving the profession. Oh, it's blah, blah. no. It is because kids fucking get away with anything they want to today. There is zero consequences. Teachers way have their. You can't even give it attention to a kid anymore. Admit it, You don't. You don't suspend kids anymore. Kids have zero consequences, and they know it. So yeah, maybe some Henry Winkler form of uh, discipline might. Minus the scissors in the face, but but something has to come to a head. Or I'm telling you, there are te- there's going to be a massive, massive shortage of teachers, and you're it's just going to be um, kids not
1: in the streets. Good. I w- <laughs> just, what
0: else? Yeah. All you parents that were bitching that your kids had to be at home all day on Zoom, you better get fucking used to it. If you don't stop, you know, bad mouthing teachers and getting on teachers' ner- asses about d- disciplining your kid or telling your kid no.
1: Kids can be fucking bitches. They can be absolute fucking bitches. Much like the two girls that Sydney oh, encounters in the bathroom. These, these fucking broads. Two broads.
0: <laughs> these are these <laughs> girls are so 90s, especially the one with her like tight pink jeans and that fucking stupid clip in her hair
1: (laughs) oh my god and like immediately they're accusing sydney of killing stacy casey and steve they're calling her her a whore they're implying that she's homicide homicidal they're really like just shit talking her and sydney's just sitting there in the stall taking it and the ones like she she even has her bubble butt boyfriend in billy like they're talking about how like billy's too hot for her and they're just really tearing Sydney a new one, this poor thing. And then they like waddle out. <laughs> and Sydney comes out and she's weeping. And this leads to another really great moment with the killer. But do you
0: really think this was a... There's, uh, There's been some debate about this I've heard. Do you really think this was one of the killers? Or do you think this was a student that was just playing a, a, a practical joke? It kind of doesn't make sense that it would be one of the real killers.
1: You know, I think one of the things about this moment that makes it work is the fact that it's vague um, because there, is, there are lots of hijinks going on within the school and it all, it all builds up to the school eventually being um, classes are, are put on hold until everything's brought under control. And so I think it's it's kind of cool that they leave it something that's not completely clear or answered.
0: Oh yeah, it's handled really well. I mean, his feet come off the toilet and you see he's wearing these black boots and he drops the black gown down. And then as she's running out of the, the bathroom, he jumps out of the stall she literally has to slide under him to get out. But notice that he didn't have a, kni- a knife. So I was thought, I think that's kind of the theory that it could have just been a random student actually is probably pretty accurate. And there's a couple other moments with a ghost face appearing in random places where I'm pretty sure there's no possible logistical way that it is one of the real killers. So she runs out of the, the, um, the, the bathroom and she doesn't really tell anybody except Tatum. She tells Tatum, but like my ass will be going to the fucking front office, but get the fucking police here right now.
1: Well, I'm curious, Troy, do you think that the reason that the school is, is put on, um, like hold, you know how they like, they pause classes. Uh, do you think it's because she's attacked? Cause I almost like the, the way it's cut, there's like a transition all of a sudden they're like, and now classes are on hold. That could uh, be, yeah. you're so right. I, was curious.
0: I, I guess I've never thought about that. I just thought that the classes were canceled just because of all of the, but maybe, yeah, I'm sure she, so maybe she did do the good thing and go to principal and be like, Hey, somebody just attacked me in the bathroom because there is that line that Stu's like, I don't know what you did, Sydney, but on behalf of the student body, we thank you.
1: Um,
0: and, you know, Stu suggests that they're going to have a big old party at his house that night. And he is adamant that Sydney come and she agrees. In the meantime, Gail is runs into Dewey for the first time. And she is just laying on the charm. She is just acting like she wants that
1: dick. Oh, and he is buying into it.
0: Oh yeah, he's she's like, oh, you don't look a day past twelve, except maybe in that manly chest area. Do you work? Does the force require you to work out? He's like, no, ma'am. I do it because of my boyish good looks, and I I think that it makes people take me more seriously, or whatever the line is. Um, But they are just having some very just flirtatious banter back and forth and it plays off very well and their chemistry together is palpable and you can completely see why they ended up getting married
1: in real life after filming this. Well, and one thing I really love about their relationship, and I think that it has done their characters really well, is the fact that, you know, obviously they eventually divorced. Like, they separated, but they've always maintained a really good working relationship and a good co-parenting situation. And they are super respectful of each other. They still continue to play these characters, well, up until the last film, obviously, um, off opposite each other. And I think it's only enhanced their chemistry, the fact that these two have been through some shit together, you know? Um, It it makes for a really um, very uh, realistic, believable, uh, just rich relationship for these two characters. And I I get why they would want to bring Dewey back, simply based off of seeing the two of them opposite each other, because there's such a charm to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the two, you know, it's like I said, it's no surprise. But by the second film, she was Courtney Cox Arquette, right? Because they do have some pretty palpable chemistry throughout this film. Now we cut to the scene where principal Henry Henry is in his office and he gets killed. I mean, he's sitting there playing with the ghost face mask. Somebody knocks on his door. He looks out. There's nobody there goes back in his office. Here's another knock. So he goes out and looks again and we get the Wes Craven cameo wearing his Freddy Krueger, red and green Freddy Krueger sweater.
1: That's actually the nightmare on Elm street. Uh, joke i was referring to earlier and oh is it okay being like though cuz i think that's like out of all the easter eggs you could ever possibly get don't tell me that's not like the best of the best when it, and when henry winkler is like uh oh sorry fred like the fact he even like calls him fred like it's just it's so it's so stupid it's so obvious that goddamn sweater but it's so good i love it
0: Oh yeah, it's a fun and for West Craven to actually be the one in the sweater and uh, yeah, it's it's quite clever. But he goes back into his office and he is immediately stabbed to death by Ghostface. He closes his door and st- Ghostface comes out and stabs the shit out of him.
1: It's a good kill because he gives such a great reaction. Like he gets stabbed and he's like ah, like <laughs> like screams at the top of his lungs. And it's it's brutal. Like it's pretty brutal. There's that really awesome shot involving uh, the reflection of his eye where you see like the ghost face mask and the reflection uh, there's some of that gloss we talked about like you know the beginning of the the review the glossiness uh, the production value of this film it's way more than you'd get in the, uh, the the slashers that came before it it feels very Hollywood
0: oh yeah it's just little 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 inklings of shots like that that are that are just kind of show the extra care and extra thought that went into making this film appear a lot more glossy and high budget than a traditional slasher film would and i appreciate that so so himbry's dead I, I guess there is a reason why it happened right i mean that was one of the things when i first saw the movie i couldn't really i kind of was questioning why is killed but then i guess it's explained later in the film
1: it's a motivator to get yes. everyone out of the party yes. yeah
0: i didn't yeah. think about that the first time i saw that so So Tatum and Sid are on her porch, and this is where we get the conversation where Tatum is, you know, hey, maybe your mother deserved her reputation. You know, you can only hear a rumor so long before there has to be some truth to it. Like, look at the Richard Gere Gerbil rumor. You know, Sidney's like, well, what if I was wrong about Cotton Weary? That means that the killer is still out there. And Tatum has the line, oh, Don't think about. Don't talk like that. You're starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flick. (laughs) Well, another little Easter egg that's thrown in. Yeah. In the meantime, there is a ghost face figure randomly in the woods. I don't. I don't know why. I
1: love the shot though. Doesn't make any. I love the zoom in. It's
0: a cool shot, but like thinking about it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like. And then he he appears in the grocery store later here in a few a few scenes. Like, you're trying to tell me nobody saw in this grocery store, nobody saw a fucking ghost face in the go- grocery store? Um, and that one do- doesn't make sense because at the same time, the guys are in the video store, right? I got,
1: but speaking of video store, man, does this scene not make you like urine for the days of video stores like this? Feels so um so like the energy I remember when I was in like my like sixth seventh eighth grade year and would go into a blockbuster when they were still bustling and they were still crammed with people and the movie you wanted was not always there and you'd be so fucking affected by it you know like this this scene really made me feel a yearning for that I will say that
0: oh it's so nostalgic so nostalgic and and I and you I used to work in a video store I was Randy literally. I worked at Hollywood Video in Davenport, Iowa, across from the fairgrounds. Anybody in Iowa's listening? It used to be uh, uh, Hollywood Video, and then when I was going to college at the University of Iowa, I worked at a Mister Movies in Marion, Iowa. And I was a very much a Randy. I was the horror movie aficionado. Like all of my customers that were regulars knew that I was the one to ask about horror movie recommendations. And I remember we were, you know, you you remember when you go into a video store and there's all the TVs around and they were playing different movies and stuff. Like we got to pick the movies that we were we could play, but the stipulation was you were only supposed to play like G rated movies. And when I worked, especially when I closed, you know, on Friday or Saturday night, by about nine o'clock, I'd be putting in Friday the thirteenth, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love it. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't get fired, but hey, it was worth it. But yeah, so yeah, definitely nostalgia. So we get this very you know, another standout scene in a video store which shows that one of them because this happens immediately after the uh, Sydney and Tatum scene at her house where we see ghosts faced in the woods. So obviously if, if Randy and Stuart and the, or Billy and Stuart in the video store, they can't be in the woods. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, But this is where Randy's accusing Billy of being the killer. And he is like, and Stu's like, why are you, why would Billy want to kill his girlfriend? And, And Randy's like, there's always some bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. And then Stu suggests it could be Sid's dad. Like, why can't they find her pops? And Randy is like, you know what? There's a very simple formula to figuring this out. If they'd watch prom night, they would know. Everyone's a suspect. But he is adamant that Billy did it. And he tells Stu one final time Billy, I think Billy did it. He's like, the dad's pop, the Sydney dad's a red herring. It's Billy Loomis. Billy is right behind him, overhears it, and is like, how do we know you're not the killer? And Randy's like, yeah, obviously, I would be a, a prime suspect. The next scene, the town is shutting down for curfew. Uh,
1: there's uh, this moment where uh, Dewey is escorting Tatum and Sidney. Uh, and there's another great bit discussing who would play Sydney in a movie about the murders. Like if they were to make a movie based on the murders who would play her. And she has this line where she says, with my luck, I guess Tori is spelling. And again, one of these really great self-aware moments where that very much carries over into the next film. Like it's, it's what happens. Like the fact that they managed to make that happen is so genius to me. And and I love just the overall uh, awareness that this whole franchise has in general. It, it's very aware of what it is and the fan base it's playing to. Uh, but so, yeah, so there's, uh, there's, So much time with these characters you get to spend with them uh, just kind of like bantering and talking amongst each other. And so nobody ever feels underwritten or without purpose. I think one of the best things about this movie is like how I'd say every film we've reviewed, Troy, every slasher, every movie, there's always one or two characters where we feel they don't feel properly utilized. And, And I don't think there's a single character in this cast who isn't allowed to be fleshed out into something uh, with personality and purpose, you know,
0: particularly like with the sheriff. I mean, the sheriff, this particular scene with the sheriff where he's telling Dewey that the calls were traced back to Neil Prescott um, and that they need to find out where he's at ASAP, put out a bolt and try to locate him. Uh, and then there's this scene where this whole time Dewey is looking on this ice cream cone.
1: Very gay. That yeah. little, with that porn stash mustache.
0: And the sheriff drops his cigarette and puts it out, and we see that he has the same black boots that the killer
1: has been wearing the entire film. Everyone's a fucking... Everyone is a goddamn suspect.
0: everyone That's the thing. Everyone's a suspect. You got to go with it. There is a... I already mentioned it, but there's a scene in the grocery store where... Tatum and Sid are buying groceries and talking. To him, and Sid's talking about maybe Billy is right that she, maybe she is the reason why the relationship has gone uh, south because she just needs to move on from the trauma and she's sexually anorexic. You see the um, ghost face reflection in the glass door of the freezer. Ghost face is just everywhere. Apparently,
1: night falls and the party is underway. And Gail's van like hovers on the edge of the property as people begin to arrive. We get a, a, a moment where there's more flirtation between Gail and Dewey when he arrives by the van and she weasels, weasels her way into joining him, into venturing into the house. And as and she grabs her jacket, it's a good fucking jacket, that gold jacket. Um, she grabs a small camera and plants it in the pocket. Yeah,
0: and she goes into the house with Dewey. While the group Sydney is looking at a bunch of video cassettes and she's like, Why is Jamie Lee Curtis in all these movies? And Randy's like, Because she is the scream queen. And there's also this whole I mean, through the last forty minutes of this film, the 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 movie Halloween is playing prominently, which is also a, a, a very, you know, nice touch, I think. Because sometimes what is happening on the screen is mirroring – what is happening in Halloween is mirroring what is happening in the film.
1: Yeah. Well, even the score. They they, they use the score of Halloween mm-hmm. uh, in the favor of the of Scream. They, they incorporate it into the moment. So as the music is building and swelling uh, within the sequence within Halloween, it's also affecting the moment that's happening within the, the, the movie as well, um, which is a really great touch. So Dewey's just hanging out with all of the teens, which has thrown me off. He's like allowing them to underage drink. He's showing off Gail. Partygoers are flocking to Gail, informing her they watch a show religiously. <laughs> and she's discreetly hiding the camera under the television as she's kind of talking these people up. So now there is this camera planted within the party that Kenny is able to watch. Her cameraman, Kenny, is watching back at the van.
0: Yeah, but he does realize that it there's a 30 second delay on the camera based the footage that he's watching is actually 30 seconds behind Tatum. In the meantime, uh, Stu has asked her to go get some beers from the garage. So she goes in her and her nipples go into the garage.
1: Those nipples.
0: Uh, <laughs> one of the more iconic shots from the film, obviously, is, is uh, Tatum in the doorway of the garage with those nipples just piercing out of the per top.
1: They had to ice cube those nipples before the scene. Like don't tell me that there wasn't someone on hand. Ice cubes in hand uh, to to rub them on Rose McGowan's nipples. No wonder she went so fucking me too movement uh, with those nipples protruding cutting through glass like nobody's business. But I mean nipples aside this really is again another and we've been using this word constantly, but how can I not say iconic sequence? How can we not acknowledge this garage sequence? It's one of the best kills in the last, I don't know, what is it, 30 years? Like, I mean, like it really, this whole scene is so fucking great.
0: Yeah, she's getting the beers from the refrigerator. She turns around to get to to get out of the garage, to go out of the garage. Ghostface shows up. And she's like, Oh, what is this? What film is this from? I spit on your garage. And she goes right up to him because she also thinks that she also thinks that's Randy. And she's like, "What do we? Do you want to play psycho killer?" And he shakes. And she says, "Can I be the helpless victim?" And Ghostface shakes his head. And she's like, "Oh, okay. How's this, please, Mister Ghostface? Don't kill me. I want to be in the sequel." It is important to mention that this is the first time the killer is called Ghostface. So Rose McGowan gets the distinction of actually giving this killer his moniker
1: yeah yeah uh and and it does seem very jokey at first she thinks it's just one of the friends and then he he pretty quickly grabs her by the arm and slices her arm and she is made well aware that uh this is not all fun and games but again i will appreciate that this is a female character that who as soon as she's put in a position of danger she fights back i mean Girl doesn't make it. Let's be real, but she sure puts up a fucking fight. She smacks him in the head with a goddamn freezer door. She's throwing beer bottles at him. She co- squats down and causes him to flip over her back. I mean, she she puts up a fight, but then she tries to climb through that goddamn like kitty door, like that like doggy door in the garage, and her knockers are so big. That she's stuck in there and her big ol' ass is stuck with that beautiful, that skirt that's got that psychedelic swirl on it. I mean, like, literally, like, who put her in that skirt? It's all ass, that skirt. And, I mean, she makes it pretty damn easy for Ghostface to just, you know, turn the button on the garage door and then turn it on and it starts going up. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. I, the image of her trying to get out of that doggy door, it's not supposed to be funny, but, I mean, she had to have known she wasn't going to fit through that little hole. Come on.
1: Well, that's why in Scary Movie they they parodied it with uh, Melissa, Melissa Jarrett uh, who is a plus sized woman trying to do uh-huh. the exact same like thing, and she's like trying to climb through that door, and it's it's just like they know there's there's no way she's getting through that door. But you know what? I guess in that moment, it's like, what the fuck do I do? Like, what do I do? Yeah, I
0: guess you're 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 uh, you're desperate. But what ends up happening is her head gets crushed very violently as the garage door raises up to the top of the garage it's pretty I, I hate the sound too it makes the cracking when her head gets crushed so, i'm like
1: oh. and the lights the lights are all flashing like it's it's like causing the garage to like like uh, uh, spark and 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 short circuit and everything because of the pressure of it it's it's very very uh, gruesome and very violent
0: right after this co- coincidentally billy shows up to the party He is there to talk to Sid.
1: Of course he is. Yeah,
0: and Sid is – I'm I'm sorry. And Stu is very kind to suggest they go upstairs to his parents' bedroom to talk. And as Randy comes into the foyer, he's like, what's Leatherface doing here? (laughs) And there's this also overarching kind of conversation that Stu and Randy have been having in terms of Randy – Wanting to know if he would possibly have a chance with Sid. And so there's this moment where Randy's like, oh, great. There goes my chance with Sid. And Stu's like, oh, all I can say is as if. And Randy walks away. He's like, okay, whatever, Alicia. So there's all kinds of little references to not even other horror movies, but other teen movies in general, which I can appreciate. Gail get, gets back to the van to watch the video with with Kenny and this is when he f- realizes that they're on a 30 second delay because she's back bef- she's back already and she's just leaving the house in the video okay and that does come into play here it's not like it's just some random plot point so Billy and Sid are upstairs in this bedroom and Sydney actually apologizes to Billy for being basically she's hinting at that she's been a bad girlfriend and that she cannot keep wallowing in the grief of her mother's death or denying who her mother really was. Now she's realizing one of her biggest fears is she's going to turn out like her mother. Billy's like, you know, this is like in silence of the lambs when Jodie Foster can't quit hearing, you know, the, the cry of the lamb. And Sydney's like, but this is real this, but this is, it's not a movie, Billy. This is real life.
1: Billy makes so many references to horror movies like that alone is such a a hint. Like when you go back, like he makes the exorcist acknowledgement earlier in the film. He acknowledges Silence of the Lambs. Like it is another little detail if you look for it. It's kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, The chemistry between these two is fucking hot. Like when they do finally start like kind of making out and going at it, like the chemistry is hot. It's hot. These are two beautiful people. I mean, like just go into town, getting it done. Well,
0: yeah, they have sex. She says she wants to be in a porn. So they literally start going at it and it's pretty, um, it's pretty hot and heavy. Uh, The group downstairs is watching Halloween. Um, Basically, this is the scene where Randy goes through the rules to survive a horror movie. You don't know the rules. Never have sex. Never drink or do drugs and never say you'll be right back.
1: I love, and I just need to acknowledge for a moment, Jamie Kennedy, I love his voice. There's something about Randy's voice and the way he delivers this dialogue. There's like a there's like a little bit of like a sound to it almost. He's like, rule one, never have sex. Rule two, never drink or do drugs. Like it's almost like he has like, like a weird, like kind of like a hint of a Jersey accent or something. I don't know. It's I'm assuming it's just Jamie Kennedy. But it's just the way he... Delivers this dialogue. There, there's such a a pop of personality to it that for a character that is killed off in the second installment of the series, his character is still very much like sustained and remained a fan favorite uh, amongst you know diehard fans of the franchise. And and I get why he he really represents us. He represents a lot of the diehard fans who know the rules of the franchise and or of, of of the genre and and know how. Things are to be anticipated, what to expect, what to predict. And, and he's, he speaks the language. He knows the jargon. Um, and I really love that they kind of kept true to that with the latest installment and introducing his niece. Because there's something about having a character like that within a film like this that makes it seem uh, very respectful of the fans who watch Yeah, it.
0: you know, Randy, you know, people talk about Randy being like this very... Uh, a aware character in terms of you know rules of horror and he is you know the quintessential horror movie nerd you know and and we we remember when we reviewed uh it's been probably a year ago now evil laugh
1: oh i remember
0: with the character of barney oh i remember yeah. So Barney and Barney and Randy have a lot in common. And I think even during that episode of evil laugh, I even said, I think Kevin Williams had had to have seen evil laugh.
1: You did. You did because, say that
0: because, because the similarities between the character of of Randy and the character of Barney and evil evil laugh are, I think too, too similar to be coincidental. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a point where Barney even starts talking about, Oh, you guys are going to have sex. You're going to be murdered. I mean, it's, and I'm not saying Kevin wants him stole. It. I love the I mean obviously he didn't. Everything he's done with the Scream script was a I think a, a very passionate loving homage, but I I always think about the character of Barney being so similar to Randy when I watch either film and I just can't buy that it's coincidental at all. I mean some there's some of their dialogue is virtually the same in, in, in what it's intent is. Um, so after his dialogue, there is a funny little scene where Stu goes to get another beer and he is like, I'll be right back. And the group is like, Oh, they, you know, start laughing. Dewey in the meantime has gotten a call that there is word of a car kind of off into the woods up the road from the, from Stu's house. So he invites Gail to go with him and they're going to walk because it's such a beautiful night.
1: Mm, The romance, this budding romance between these two. It's developing. It is
0: developing, hot and heavy, just like Sydney and Billy at this moment because she's upstairs taking her top off, taking her bra off. uh, At the same time when uh, PJ Souls is on screen in Halloween with her obligatory tit shot. (laughs)
1: It's a very well-timed comment, though Sydney does not actually reveal her bosoms to the audience. Something I respect. I like the fact that they've never... While they've let her have have sexy moments, they've never sexualized Sydney to the extent that she's been, um, you know, topless or shown showing much skin um, over the course of the whole series. She's always portrayed to be um, somewhat pure, you know, and I I like that about her character.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it was... A little jarring, actually, to see that I don't remember. I didn't ever remember we got a shot of of, of Nev Campbell in a bra, but we do, uh, because yeah, throughout the rest of the franchise, she's pretty much yeah, like you said, very innocent, conservative in how she presents herself. So, um, but she gets it hot and heavy with with Billy for sure. Randy gets a phone call, and it's somebody that tells him that Principal Henry was found dead. And he is gutted at hanging from the goalpost on the football field. So, of course, when he tells the partygoers this, they want to rush out and go look at the body before it gets taken down. And this is the moment where Gale and Dewey are walking down the street. The cars are just blaring down the road. Dewey's like, hey, stop, stop. And they don't stop. So they have to. he has to take Gale and jump off the side of the road. And there's this, you know, moment where he lands on top of Gail. They start to kiss. She makes a little comment as she looks over. Is that what you're looking for? And he's like, my whole life. (laughs) And then she's like, no, that and it's a car and it's Neil Prescott's car.
1: Yeah. Oh, the twists and the turns. Because now if his car has been run off the road, where is Neil Prescott? Well. It's opening up a whole new can of worms in regards to the theories about who the killer could be. And I do love that this movie continues to keep you guessing, literally up to the very last moment. Um, following their love session, uh, Sydney questions why Billy, uh, or who Billy called when he was in jail a couple days ago. Um, she's curious who he used his one phone call for. He says it was his father. Uh, she doubts that because she knows the sheriff called his father, and so um, she's kind of like trying to poke holes in his story. And he questions her doubt, uh, but before anything can really come from it, he's quickly attacked by Ghostface, who stalks up from behind him. And Sydney's like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Shit!" Uh, and before he can do anything, Ghostface stabs him multiple times in the the gut and torso. And he turns around; he has blood all over his body, and. He's apparently been violently stabbed and what appears to be killed. And so he collapses to the ground. And And in the moment, especially if you're someone who hasn't seen it, but I remember the first time watching this, this was a great twist. And it totally throws the viewer off because you're like, oh my God. Well, now he's not the killer. Who could it be? Uh, I mean, and obviously there are more twists and turns to come, but in the moment, This pays off. I mean, it comes out of fucking nowhere and it it looks pretty violent. They play it rather well. But let me just say, man, the chase sequence to follow, chef's kiss. I mean, I know that if there's one thing I look for in slashers, it's quality chase scenes. Give me a chase scene that lasts for five solid minutes and goes through seven different locations and involves eight different weapons. I, mean, like, I want to see the most elaborate chasing fucking possible. And this movie, it, it, it delivers in spades.
0: Well, uh, yeah. The, can we just say though, this film possibly has one of the longest climaxes in slasher film history. I mean, by the time the whole final climax of the film takes place at Stu's house, right? And when they by the point they get to the Stu's house, there is still like 50 some minutes left of the film. We also have to mention this is a two-hour or it's an hour and 51 minute slasher film. Yeah. And we always constantly talk about, yeah, you know, well, slasher films don't need to be, you know, that long. But for I think it actually plays into this one's favor because it never feels that long at all.
1: Oh, no, that's because it keeps you guessing the entire time. I mean, your your brain's never not active when you're watching this movie. You are never bored during Scream,
0: ever. No, and that's what I'm saying. It pay, that plays in the long running time's favor, because I think even though it's almost two hours, it breezes by. Uh, so, yeah, there's a elaborate chasing. Sydney runs through the house. She goes up to the attic. There's a moment where she tries to get out of the attic window onto the roof, and Ghostface grabs her. And she yanks free from his grip and falls back onto the boat below. Luckily, the boat has its cover on, so she's not, you know, injured. But as she gets off the boat, she notices Tatum's mangled dead body still hanging in the garage doggy door
1: uh, Nev Campbell gives such a great fucking reaction to violence and murder like her face like I always buy it like she has so much fear in her eyes she is the like these little like squinty eyes that like get all watery and emotional and and terrified and I just buy her fear she looks so believably scared. I don't want
0: to know how nobody else saw that body hanging out of the garage. All those kids that were there, you know, they were out wandering (laughs) about. they try to tell me nobody saw that fluorescent (laughs) green top and that psychedelic skirt hanging out of the goddamn garage door.
1: They're all wasted and went to drink, like drunkenly drive away. And they just probably breezed right by it and didn't even notice.
0: (laughs) We do get the scene with Jane with. Randy on the couch watching Halloween, the scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is sitting in the uh, doorway of the bedroom after she stabbed Michael Myers in the eye with the um, wire hanger. And he's coming at her and he's like, Jamie, turn around, Jamie, turn around, which it's been mentioned a thousand times, but it's kind of tongue in cheek because the actor is Jamie Kennedy. And as he's saying, Jamie, turn around, Jamie, turn around. Who's coming up behind him with the knife raised? Ghostface.
1: And just when you think that Ghostface is about to, you know, chop into Randy uh, in the middle of this whole, this ironic moment, um, Ghostface is distracted. He notices a uh, sound coming from the van outside, the news van. Uh, arriving at the van, you have Sydney. Who confronts Kenny and basically starts to tell him what happened, and they become distracted by the screen, the the TV screen, where they see that Randy is now being, you know, potentially killed by Ghostface. Only they realize that Ghostface leaves the screen, and noticing the thirty second delay, he opens up the door to see that the uh, front door to the house is now wide open, and so when he steps out of the vehicle. He turns around to face Sydney, and Ghostface steps in and violently cuts his throat. It's such a great kill, super gruesome. You see the cut; it's it's really well done, super gnarly.
0: Oh yeah, it's a pretty sh- startling sequence as well. You know, I mean, you don't expect poor Kenny to to go, but he he does. But he does he does one last thing before he dies, and he he nods Cindy towards the back of the van because there is a little escape. Kind of hatch that she has to crawl through to get out of the back of the van. So Sydney just darts into the back van, crawls out of this little—it's like a little what, a, like a cubby hole that she has to crawl out of to get through the back of the van. And I have, I have, I have chuckle every time I see it because Ghostface follows her, and there's like a shot of him trying to get through, the, <laughs> trying to crawl through the cubby hole himself, which is kind of funny because all he has to do is like stay outside and chase her because she's going out the back of the van. Like it's, it was, it's just comical to see this ghost faced figure trying to crawl through a little cubby hole.
1: Well, and people don't think about the fact that like with these masks, like you have like no peripheral vision. Like it is not easy to operate in these costumes. They make it look way easier than it is in these movies. So like, that seems like something that would absolutely happen. To somebody in that costume, like, who's like, I've got to chase after this person. And they're like, I'm stuck. I can't see anything. Like, you know, <laughs> can't, it just seems like very plausible, like an accident that would happen. It does make the killer seem more human, which is like, I like this. Like, I like that fact that this killer is never fantastical. He's never a Jason um, Voorhees or another character that keeps coming back from the dead. There's an explanation, a very real explanation for who the killer is every time. Um, and so I appreciate the little fuck ups, the little errors, you know.
0: Oh yeah, I was going to say Ghostface is not the, is not the most um slick killer there is. There's a lot of times that he makes some mistakes or he easily gets knocked off his feet or he runs into something or whatever. So I, I do appreciate that fact that he is made to be very human, he or she. So it just it adds that element to I, I it adds to the element that everyone's a suspect because this is not a Jason Voorhees, this is not a Michael Myers. This is we know it's always somebody else that's taking on the persona of ghost faced and it's, they're always very human in their, uh, reactions and interactions with their victims. So it just makes it that much more terrifying and realistic, you know, Dewey and Gail go back, get back to the house and he immediately tells her to go to the van and call the police. He's going in the house to look around. And when he goes in, Halloween is still playing. I will say the continuity of this Halloween tape. If anybody is, knows Halloween like as a film and has seen it numerous times, you know there's an issue with the continuity because the scene that it's on now when Gate when Dewey gets in the house is not where it would be if we were if uh, Randy was just watching the wire hanger scene. So Gail gets to the van and she notices a huge puddle of blood outside the van. So she immediately gets in the van, shuts the door, starts the van. But the whole windshield is covered with a liquid, and when she turns it on, she realizes it's blood. And then Kenny, poor Kenny's body falls onto the glass of the car.
1: This whole moment is so fucking entertaining. Because then you have Randy show up, he's like, What's going on? And she just starts beating him with like the cell phone. <laughs> and she tries to drive away and the blood's like running down the glass, the body's sliding out the window, and all of a sudden Sydney comes running out on the street. And so Gail has to like swerve to avoid hitting her. And there is this like extremely violent car crash where the tr- the van just like plows into a tree. It's really well done. And and you do think for a moment that Gail would probably be dead at this moment because it is a violent impact.
0: Oh, especially because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. You know, she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So yeah, I would expect that, her, that she flew through the, <laughs> flew through the windshield and got smashed onto the tree. But I do like the, I I love the shot of Kenny's body sliding down the windshield. And actually, if you've seen my film party night, I totally paid homage to that. We'll say paid homage, quote unquote, during one of the final scenes of party night, when the main character, the final girl gets in the car and starts the car and her boyfriend's body slides down the windshield and he's had his throat slit. So Sydney gets to the house. Um after the van crashes and Dewey comes out and he sees Sydney and she's like Dewey and he's like Sydney is like really confused and he falls and we see that he's been stabbed in the back now this is when Dewey was supposed to die folks like in the original film original script, Dewey was dead at this point. Ghostface comes up pulls the knife out of Dewey's back. she tries to hide into the in the police uh truck. And as she's calling through the uh, CB radio, the, the radio in the truck, Ghostface opens the back of the truck, proceeds to crawl in and grab her and starts choking her.
1: There's this great moment right beforehand where she gets in the vehicle and then she realizes there's no keys and Ghostface does dangle the keys in front of her mockingly. So that's when she's like, fuck it, I'm just going to radio for help. But I do love this little moment where you see the trunk like slowly opening behind her and you see the killer just rise up. Um, it's a it's a great little moment. Again, she fights back. She's always fucking kicking and punching like you are not getting your hands on Sidney Prescott, let me tell you right now. And so she's forced to run back into the house. Come
0: well, on, she gets a gun. She gets Stewie's gun, right? And as she is running into the house, Stew and Randy approach her, and they are both accusing each other of being the killer. And what does she do? She does the smartest fucking thing you could ever do. She shuts the door on both of them.
1: Fuck you both. I love it.
0: Fuck you both. Yeah, I love and it. And locks them out.
1: And if you look here, you do notice, like, because you is the... You as a viewer, I think you pretty much know that Randy is not going to be a killer at this point because you've seen him in several situations where it was pretty apparent that the killer was genuinely probably looking to kill him, especially with that couch sequence. So he just seems very clueless. I I think if anyone doesn't feel like a red herring, it's Randy at this point. But Stu fucking absolutely does. And if you you listen to the dialogue and you see what Stu is uh, doing with his body language and what he's saying, very manic. Like, I mean, it is... Really big and very intimidating and very aggressive towards Sydney, like coming up the steps and reaching towards her and everything. So I I get why she slams that fucking door smart. Good on her. Um, But from here, I mean, we do enter the final stretch of the finale. Like this is the last build of the climax and what a payoff.
0: Yeah, as she is inside the house with the door locked and the two guys outside pounding to get in, we see that Billy stumbles out from the bedroom upstairs, and he actually tumbles down the stairs quite violently. Uh, and he's still alive, so she runs to him and you know gets him up, and he he wants to leave the house, and she's like, "No, no, no, don't go out there." He takes the gun from her. And opens the door and immediately Randy comes in. And Randy is like, oh my God, Stu's gone mad. He's gone mad. And Billy turns around very slowly, points the gun at Randy and says, we all go a little mad sometimes. And shoots Randy. And we, the audience and Sydney are like, what the fuck? Yeah,
1: it is a twist.
0: She tries to run into the kitchen and is immediately blocked by Stu, who walks in and doesn't say anything to her, but he until he lifts the voice changer up to his mouth and he says, surprise, Sid.
1: This moment with the two boys, as we start to realize, oh, fuck, these fuckers are the killers, both of them. Um, They unleash a very unhinged performance here. I think it's a... um, reveal that allowed them to kind of go to an extreme um, with the overall mentality of the who, what, and why, what they're doing, really allowed these actors to really run with their abilities, their capabilities as performers. They both really elevate their performances and take their um, overall just spiral into uh, psychotic unraveling. Uh, to, to a really wild extreme, especially, I would say, Stu. I, I, I really think that Stu has some really just unhinged moments, bits of dialogue that I, I really buy it. I buy this character. Whereas, you know, Billy is just, he has a lot of rage, violent rage. But Stu it seems very just um off crazy like just absolutely just in it for the sake of the the violence in it for the sake of the killing um, he doesn't really give a fuck about the who what and why he just likes doing it and I find it so interesting to watch I really love Matthew Lillard's performance for the final stretch of the film here I think he's great
0: oh I do too I, I think that he does he goes places that is is just so as a audience member to watch is just so entertaining and uh realistic uh it's yeah i I love i love the last 10 minutes of this film are just ace uh so we find out that you know billy's motive at first he says that motives it's the millennium motives are incidental because sydney's like why and he's like why you know you want to know why very much mirroring rebecca Gayhart in urban legend right when she says why, and so ultimately, what we find out is Billy is enacting this revenge on Sydney and her mother because now it is literally the year anniversary of when they killed her mother. They reveal that they are the ones that killed her mother, uh, and she's like, "Well, you'll you'll never get away with this." And they're like, "Oh yeah, just ask Cotton Weary. It was so easy to frame him. Just watch a couple movies, take a couple notes." And Billy reveals his motive, quote unquote, is the fact that Sydney's mother slept with his father and his mom found out and she abandoned him. Uh, And when he's telling this story, I do like there's a shot of Stu's face where he looks totally like perplexed, like he had no idea that this was kind of the root cause of Billy wanting to do this. He is totally
1: perplexed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's I think that's why when I say like I really love where he goes with his performance here is because I do genuinely think that Stu just is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and and enjoys the violence of it all. Whereas Billy's intentions are coming from a deeper, darker place, you know, but but there is also I mean, I I hate to go here because we go here a lot. But this is something brought up by a lot of queer fans. And, and watching it, I was looking for it and I see it. I, I see it. There are some definite queer, gay, romantic, lover-esque undertones in the way these boys um, interact with each other, especially during this big monologue moment where Stu is kind of, he kind of basically has his like head perched on Billy's shoulder. And he's just like right up in the nook of it, listening to everything he says. And he keeps making this like really intense eye contact towards Billy. And it does feel very erotic. And I'm not like looking to say this for the sake of saying it, because if it wasn't genuine, I don't think I would really want to touch on it. But I mean, I can't deny it. Like it's something that exists between these two. This kind of like tormented gay lovers uh, out of hellbent vengeance, like murdering spree. (laughs) Like it's just it's it feels that way. They definitely feel like they have this weird sexual chemistry almost.
0: Well, we have to keep in mind the script was written by a gay man. I mean do with that what you will. They reveal their their plan. They bring out Sydney's dad. They have had Sydney's dad tied up and bound in the closet apparently this entire time. So they bring him out and this plan is they're going to frame him for the murders and they're going to blame it on the fact that he just went crazy on the one year anniversary of his wife's murder. And Billy and Stu are going to be the sole survivors. But to to make it even more realistic, they agree that they need to have wounds to go along with their story that they tell the cops that they were attacked. So they're going to stab each other. Billy gets the knife first and plunges it into Stu, goes a little too deep. Stu takes a knife, stabs him. And there is just like this. It's almost I don't even want to say it's almost. It's very comedic. These two going at it and stabbing each other, penetrating each other multiple times with the knife and Stu making the comment, Oh, you're going too deep.
1: Feeling a little woozy here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you have to, you know, the one thing that I question though, is like, do you feel like Billy was intentionally trying to kill Stu?
1: Oh, I don't think Billy gave two shits about it. You know, I, I, I really, I think Billy is on his own kind of vengeance spree
0: because on and one hand, if you sit there and think, if you're going to sit there and buy into this theory that I've heard as well as a gay horror fan, I've heard this, that Stu and, and ran or Stu and Billy were lovers and had some sexual thing escapade going on that drove their killing spree. It wouldn't really make sense to me that they that Billy would once do dead, but yeah, you're right. I guess he could be a just a fucking psychopath, which he obviously is. He even says, he even calls himself a psychopath. He's like, "It certainly fucked you up, made you sleep with a psychopath."
1: I think in regards to like big reveals and like motivations and plans, like regarding why killers are like kind of disclosing their master plans, um, I do think this film is the best of the best. The motivation is fucking amazing. The uh the overall plan that the killers have for the who what and why, flawless. Um, their whole kind of like backstory of what they're going to do and why they're going to, you know, uh, why they're basically going to get away with it. The fact they have this all thought out. Like I really feel like this film crossed all the Ts and dotted all the I's when it came to the conclusion, uh, which makes the reveal and the payoff inevitably feel so much grander and bigger. I think this is definitely one of the best. Um, finales, reveals, and overall just final moments with a killer reveal. Uh, it, it really is probably the number one for me, to be honest, just because it, it, it's so tight. It's so well scripted. Uh, it It doesn't feel convoluted. You have a lot of movies that end... With a big reveal, and when the killer gives their reasoning as to who, what, and why, you're like, Are you okay? Like, I guess I'll go with this. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is lame, or this doesn't make sense, or it's this is exaggerated. This doesn't feel exaggerated. This feels very much like two mentally unstable young men making some really horrible fucking choices.
0: Horrible choices, indeed. And, you know, they're pretty. You know they're pretty cocky to think they're actually going to get away with it. I mean, forensic evidence is a thing. This was ninety six. I would think that they would be found out, but it is the naive. The, the it's the innocence of of teenage boys, right, thinking that they're going to be able to pull this off.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely take that into account with these two.
0: Yeah. So. Stu goes to get the gun and he notices that it's missing from the counter where he set it. And he's like, Oh shit, there's a problem. And Billy's like, what? And he's like the gun. I laid it right here and it's not here. Well, all of a sudden Gail steps in with the gun. Stu's like, where's the gun? She's like right here, motherfucker. And she comes into the room and she's going to shoot them. And she does this little thing where she's like, I I have a better ending for you. The, you know, the, The the TV journalist comes in, stumbles upon you two fucks finds you out and saves a day. And and Sydney's like, Oh, I like that ending. But Billy approaches her and like gets right in her face. He's like, I know something you don't. And all of a sudden he kicks her. She flies back onto the porch. He gets the gun and she did not shut the safety off. And as they're out on the porch, he's getting ready to shoot her. He's like, this is Gail weather signing off. And, uh, Stu turns around and notices that Sydney is not there. He's like, oh shit. And Billy goes back in the house. He doesn't shoot Gail because he rushes back into the house. And this is when he goes on a fucking major tirade. He's like throwing shit around. You fucking bitch. Come out, you fucking bitch. And I love this moment where she calls him on the phone.
1: Uh, Sydney takes full control of the final moment of the film which is really empowering she uh, takes over the 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 ghost face voice operator the voice manipulator and she calls them and she kind of taunts and mocks them uh for a moment um and it causes Billy to become irate and he's breaking things and ruining things around the house is stew who is now bleeding out like stew is definitely dying which is hilarious stew takes the phone and he has some really great like final one-liners uh, at one point <laughs> billy like hits him with the phone and he's like you hit me with the phone dick and then <laughs> yeah. and then he's like did you really call the police already? My (laughs) mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Like (laughs) it is so good. His dialogue here is just one after another, like one liner, one liner, one liner.
0: And she is just taunting them to death. She's like, Oh, I see Billy had a motive, but what's your motive, Stu? And he's like, peer pressure. (laughs) And Stu gets, uh, Billy takes the phone. He's like, you better come out, you little bitch. He goes to look for, her and he approaches the the closet where they had they were keeping her dad. And he hears a noise, and he turns his head, and all of a sudden she busts out of the closet with an umbrella and stabs him in the chest with the umbrella. And she and she is wearing the ghost faced costume, which I find kick ass because she wants to make sure the last thing that these fuckers see is the ghost face that they used to terrorize and kill other people. She stabs him with the umbrella. And at the same time, Stu all of a sudden comes and attacks her. And they have this very elaborate flight where he throws her over the couch. They're rolling around on the floor and all the feathers from the couch pe- uh, couch pillows are flying everywhere. And he's on top of her and he, and he's like, I've always had a thing for you, Sid
1: in your dreams. And she get,
0: in your dreams. And she gets the best of him and she gets up and she tips the big old heavy ass TV onto his head, smashes onto his head and fucking electrocutes the shit out of him. I
1: know people want Stu to come back in another in another movie. <laughs> but no-
0: there is no way. I people, I know guys, if you're one of those people that are like, oh, bring Stu back, that would fuck the entire franchise up because there is no way this dude survived that. I don't know if you guys remember how fucking heavy those TVs were. These aren't your little flat screen TVs we have now, these things weighed, what, 60, 70 pounds, those tube televisions. If that fell on top of you with enough force to break, you are dead. You were dead. Plus he was dying anyways. He was literally moments from bleeding out. There is no way that Stu died. And I know people will say, oh, well, look at Kirby. Kirby got stabbed. Okay. There's a big difference between being stabbed and having a fucking 70-pound television smash your head and electrocute you. So while I love the Stu character and I, I get the sentiment of he's dead, leave it at that. There is no way anyone would survive I that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. So Randy is revealed to be alive, but he is immediately knocked out by Billy. Right. Right. At-
0: Right after he says he's never been so happy yeah, that, to be a virgin, yeah. Billy's arm comes flying out of the side of the screen and knocks. He barely gets him a out. line of
1: dialogue out and he's already knocked out <laughs> again. And so then Billy Im- immediately mounts atop Sydney and he's attempting a stabber. And before he can fucking Gail motherfucking Weathers is back up on her feet, gun in hand. And this time, She shoots him in the fucking chest because she's a badass bitch.
0: And she says, I guess I didn't forget to turn the safety
1: on this time. You bastard. (laughs) (laughs) It's in a perfect, perfect final moment to the moment where the supposedly dead killer comes back for one last scare is cut short. Just as. Billy starts to lift his head. Sydney aims the gun at him and she fires. She shoots a bullet right through his forehead. She says, not in my movie, motherfucker. I mean, she doesn't say motherfucker, but it's implied. But like, I mean, what a satisfying payoff. And what's so satisfying about it to me, honestly, Troy, at this point is the fact that, I mean, A, the final girl kicks some ass and and she she definitely got her revenge. But I also love the fact that we are left with several major characters alive. A lot of times, I mean, I think these movies are more concerned about body count than they are about preserving the likability of the characters. And this cast is so charming and so likable. The fact that we end up having what is actually four characters, major characters that survive, because you have Randy, Gale, uh, Sydney, and then it's revealed Dewey as he gets you know, pushed out uh, to the ambulance here in the final moment. Uh, all four of these characters have made it. and And I think it's rare that a movie... Of the genre um, really cares about people enough to allow that to happen. This movie still had a massive headcount. I mean, there are a lot of victims over the course of this film, but still also made sure to give us people we want to root for, which I think is vital and pivotal to make a movie like this really successful.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the people that survive are, I think, the ones that you would hope survived. I mean, I wanted every, I mean, I would love for Tatum to survive. I mean, but you know, why not demand Tatum come back? I mean, that's about as logical as Stu coming back based on their manner of deaths. Um, but there is a final moment with Sydney's dad jumping out of the closet. He's still alive. They all kind of huddle out of the house, limp out of the house. And Gail ends the film by doing a, a news broadcast from outside the house reciting that exact monologue that you opened this podcast with. So, we are going circular. We are ending
1: where we began. And I'm going to do it again. Right now I'm joking. <laughs> like what if I just went through the whole Gale Weathers monologue. Seriously though, like that beautiful crane shot lifting up over the over the sunrise um uh, the field behind the farmhouse like just looking beautiful and and uh, soaring and these this wild fields—it's just really beautiful. Like this beautiful note to end it on, uh, as as Gale delivers this big epic kind of you know news report. It really is like the perfect note to take the movie out on, um, and uh, this is just such a satisfying finale. My God, like one of the best of them.
0: I agree. I mean, the last fifteen minutes of this film are just an adrenaline rush to watch. Um, shock after shock. Like I don't know. I don't. Re- I don't know if you remember, but like your first time figuring or watching this film, were you surprised by the killer's reveal? I know I was.
1: Oh, absolutely, I was. I was. I remember before I ever saw the movie, it was like everyone because I was still in grade school at this time, and everybody was talking about it. And there was no way my family would let me see it. So I remember when I finally got the chance to see it, it was so like taboo and such a big deal, and it like blew. My mind and the reveal absolutely like left me just f- crazy shocked.
0: Well, and then you know, if you stick around through the end credits, you do get now what has become the trademark kind of end credit uh sequence where each of the actors' faces pop up with their names. I always like to stick around for that. Um, but yeah, that is scream.
1: We did it. We did oh, it. Oh my god, two hours and 40 minutes, a long Whew. one,
0: but I mean. A, the film itself is almost two hours long. B, it's our seventy-fifth episode. We had to go big. We had to yeah. go big.
1: And C, if any movie deserves this much dialogue oh, and conversation, we,
0: exactly, what? we could have and we could have talked more and more and more if we would have got on the tangents about the sequels and stuff. But that's why I said we need to we need to rein it in because this is going to be long enough as it is. Yeah, uh, we I definitely want to cover the sequels at some point. Anybody that knows me follows me or has heard me speak about the screen franchise actually knows that my favorite of the franchise isn't part one, it's part two. So I need to cover part two at some point.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I know very well an opportunity for us to do that. I'll just keep it. At, I'll keep it at that. I'll keep it at that.
0: I know that's why I brought it up, but we will actually cover you know the rest of the franchise at some point as well. But yeah, guys, that's Scream. I mean, hopefully, we entertained you because we know this film has been talked to or talked about to death. But hopefully, you found something we said interesting, funny, whatever, controversial. If you want to comment, let us know. Let us know your thoughts on Scream. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. We're, We're just gonna leave it at I'm just gonna leave it at the Scream franchise's. Obviously, one of my favorites. It was super influential to me as a filmmaker. I am glad that it reignited the slasher franchise in 1996, and I'm glad that it seems to be on that trajectory now with the latest Scream. So I, I love the Scream franchise. I do think they kind of get a little bit repetitive. So I'm glad that they're taking Part Six and locating it outside of Woodsboro and doing something a little bit different with it, it seems. So super excited, but scream one of my favorites. So it was worth two hours and 40 minutes.
1: Absolutely. Worth every, every second. And um I, I'm glad that, you know, I, I'm sad we didn't cover poison Ivy, but we still got our daily dosage of Drew Barrymore. Oh, you
0: can never get enough. And, of Drew uh, Barrymore.
1: We can't get enough. And and you know what? I'm excited.
0: Will, I will say about Drew Barrymore and then we'll end. I, I love the fact that she's still very much acknowledges this film.
1: Oh, she's so proud of it. She loves it. I love her.
0: Yes. You don't see that. You don't see a lot of, of actors that have gained her sort of notoriety that starred in horror films. Won't even discuss them. So it's cool that she embraces it and still is very active in the kind of the scream franchise. She, on her show, she was promoting the latest scream movie and everything. So I love to see that. I love Drew Barrymore, but guys, let us know your thoughts on Scream, and um, should we announce – well, we don't know what we're covering. Well, we're doing 30. our fan
1: picks at week, <laughs> and I kind of like the idea that we like just leave our listeners kind of – Waiting in suspense. Yeah.
0: Okay. We're doing fan picks. So stay tuned to see what we cover next week because we are going to, based on suggestions that we have gotten, we are going to choose four of them to do for the month of July. Uh we are just gonna randomly pick four episodes four titles. We'll put them in a randomizer and have them choose choose them for us because we already got some great suggestions. So we will announce those titles.
1: Next I'm week, I'm very excited. This is gonna be a fun, a fun month. Let me tell you. Leading up to our grand debut
0: at the Houston Horror Film Festival,
1: where you can finally see us in yeah, person. If
0: you're, yeah, if you're there, you're gonna find our little table. Come up and say hi, get some goodies, and yeah.
1: So, give Troy a kiss on Ooh. the lips. The whole shebang. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: anyways, guys, remember Apple Podcast, five star rating. Check out our Patreon for awesome bonus content. Patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. And until next week with a listener pick that we will reveal to you, we bid you good night. Good night.